Boys and girls, thank you so much for tuning in to the Big Honker Podcast. It is the middle of hunting season, and we could not be more excited to bring you this show. This show is brought to you by the one that started it all, Dive Bomb Industries. It is time for you to get skinny, ditch those full bodies, because silhouettes are the way to go now. Keeps your trailer nice and organized all season long. They've got floaters out now. Uh, so if you're if you're hunting those big bodies of water, small creek beds, whatever, uh, they got floaters out for you. All of the uh, silhouettes, the socks, they are world class, and you don't have to have a ton of trailer space to store these things anymore. So Dive Bomb Industries is the way to go. Head over there right now. Get whatever you're going to need for this waterfowl season. It is here. It is time. So get after it. We're also brought to you by Pacific Calls. My absolute favorite is the BA Lesser Call, the 530 Speckle Belly Call, and the PCD Duck Call. And they just released a brand new duck call called The Judge. Sold out. Sold out. It's gone. Matter of minutes. So you miss that. Man, but named after yours truly. They did say that if this went over well, there might be some more. So fret no more. Head over to PacificCustomCalls.com. Whatever you're chasing, ducks, geese, cranes, they've got it all. Uh, every call that they make is made right there in Post Falls, Idaho. They make great calls. They're great individuals. Uh, could not be happier than to be associated with them. So whatever you're chasing, PacificCustomCalls.com has got something for you. Head over there right now. Also, we're brought to you by Boss Shot Shells. The War Chief is out now, and it is a buffered shotgun shell. We shot it up in Canada, both trips, and I can definitely tell a difference in the way that we were getting our bird. BossShotShells.com, everything is made in America. That is their slogan. That is what they live by, made in America. And they are great people. BossShotShells.com would make a great little present under the Christmas tree for when that hunter of yours sees all the gifts laid out on Christmas morning. We're also brought to you by Shin Gear. They are not just a waiter company anymore. They are a full-blown waterfowl apparel company. Everything that they make is phenomenal. I have torture-tested the bibs. They stood up to everything that I did. They've got new jackets out, vests. I'm telling you what, everything that they have done has been perfect. There's not a single product from Shin Gear that I have been disappointed in. The jackets, the waders, the bibs, the vest, it's all great stuff. And the best part is they all come in solids. I'm a big solid guy. I don't like a lot of camouflage. So Shin Gear has catered to that kind of old school vibe. They're great stuff. ShinGear.com, whatever you're looking for, jackets, bibs, it's all great. So head over to ShinGear.com. You won't regret it. We're also brought to you by Ducks Unlimited. Into the Vault is live now. You can start bidding on whatever it is. Christmas is coming up. You got that waterfowl hunter or that outdoorsman in your family. There's a lot of good stuff on there that is priced very, very well. Everybody can uh, take part in this auction. Into the Vault, head over to ducks.org and just follow the links and it'll take you... Uh, right to the into the vault auction it's the biggest auction of the year even if you're not going to buy anything head over there and look there's so much cool history there's so many cool items that are that are for auction even if you're not going to bid i mean it's cool to just see what all is out there there's guns there's decoys there's paintings trips. there's trips 
And it all goes into conservation. They put their money where their mouth is, and they are the reason that ducks are in the sky. So head over to the end of the vault auction, take a look around, make a couple bids. Never know, you might win. We're also brought to you by Double T British Kennels. Corey has got some of the best labs that are out there right now. The best hunting dogs, the best family dogs are coming from Corey's kennel. Double T British Kennels. We hunt over, we hunt over them out here at the Big Honker Lodge and their sweethearts. They're sweethearts in the home, and they are absolute monsters in the field. Cannot say enough good things about Corey. He's, he's turning out some world-class dogs right now. So head over to BritLabs.com and see what you need. You can get puppies, started dogs, finished dogs, whatever you need. Corey can help you out. BritLabs.com. Also, we're brought to you by the Looking Glass Podcast. Logan and Rebel put on a hell of a show. They're all uh, they're hilarious, the two of them. Their podcasts run long, so if you've got that long, grueling road trip ahead, uh, turn on the boys up there in Missouri. Head over to their Patreon account, a couple bucks a month, and you have their entire library. They do a bourbon review. If you're a bourbon lover, uh, you can listen to them, maybe find a, a hidden bottle that maybe you've never heard of before that you want to try. Or maybe you've been wanting to try bourbon for a long time, and you're just like, do I really want to spend the money? They do a great job of breaking everything down. And they're hilarious. So check them out. Looking Glass Podcast. Go over to their Patreon. Type in Looking Glass Podcast. You'll find them. We're also brought to you by Dirty Duck Coffee. It is how I start my morning every single day out here at the Big Honker Lodge. 3.15 comes early and Dirty Duck Coffee keeps me caffeinated. The Missouri Boat Ride Blend. It's how we start our day out here every single day. And they've got a cold brew. I know it's winter time, but it's a great little afternoon pick-me-up. Have a little cold brew coffee on my scouting trips. Uh, they've got great looking swag, hoodies, shirts, caps, whatever you need to look cool at the duck camp. They've got it. So head over to dirtyduckcoffee.com. If you're a pure caffeine junkie, they've got a high velocity. They've got a dark roast. They've got all sorts of good stuff. Dirtyduckcoffee.com, and you can get a, uh, a six-pack. Right now, it's on sale, $84.99 for a full-limit six-duck special right to your door. Another good little stocking stuffer. We're also brought to you by Hemp Hill Farm. Let me tell you what. I've got an old dog. Patrick at Hemp Hill Farm has a CBD pet blend, and it has totally uh, rejuvenated Lou. He's 10 years old, joints are aching, you know, the, the typical thing. And he's also been a bit of a whiner during the, uh, whenever, whenever we're getting the hunts going. CBD has totally taken the whining out. It would usually take us five birds, five retrieves or so to kind of get him settled in. Now he is locked in. He's focused. He's ready to go. His joints are no longer aching. The pet CBD has been a game changer for him. Jeff takes the gummies every single night. Sleep like a baby. It's good for your aching joints, and uh, they've got a promo. BHP saves you 20% at checkout, and I actually think that they have a Black Friday sale going on all week. So head over to Hemp Hill Farm. That is farm with a PH, hemphillfarm.com, and you can get whatever you need. It'll ship straight to you, and if it's your first time ordering, you can save 30%. Also, we're brought to you by Lucky Duck, maker of the 2x4 blind, and... A brand new spinner. They've they've redesigned their spinner. Can't tell you how many times I've been out goose hunting. Got got ducks in the area, so you put, so you put a spinner out. Turn your spinner on, and it stops white side up. No more will that happen with the Lucky Duck 
XHDI. They figured out a way to get the white to always stop on the bottom, displaying the black on top. So it's removing all excuses to us goose hunters to put a to put a spinner out there. Uh, they've got five star crash test rated kennels. They've got a snow goose rotary. They've even got a brand new ice axe. It will remove ice from your water hole. No more fru- no more frozen water. No more freezing up the. No more freezing up your ice and running your ducks off. So they're great people over at Lucky Duck, constantly innovating. Go check them out at LuckyDuck.com. Also, we're brought to you by Mossberg. Don't be sleeping on the, on the Waterfowl 940. It's what I shoot, and it is a great gun. Uh, it handles everything that we have out here. The 940, it's a beast. This is our second year running it, and uh, it's, it's, it's handled it well. So if you see a Mossberg, if you're at a big box store, Cabela's Bass Pro, you see a Mossberg in the, in the back, put it to your shoulder. That's at Mossberg.com. We're also brought to you by Alpha Outdoor Specialties, maker of the Stanfield Stool and the brand new Blind Caddy. So used to, we'd sit in A-frames on buckets and your back would hurt. And then your butt would hurt towards the end of the year. Get the old bucket butt. No more Alpha Outdoor Specialties, the Stanfield Stool going to take care of my back all season long. And the blind caddy is going to keep me organized while I'm in the blind. Got a place to put my coffee now, shotgun shells. That is at Alpha Outdoor Specialties. We're also brought to you by MLR Graphics. If you need shirts made up, they're, they're the ones that make up all of our swag. Get a hold of Michael Russell at MLR Graphics. Caps, sweatshirts, whatever you need to do, they can do it. They can order it to you. Mugs, anything with Yukon, they can get to you. Good company. We buy all of our stuff from them. They do a great job. Last but not least, we're brought to you by Stanfield Hunting Outfitters. We've got a couple hunts left here in uh, December coming up. Maybe you're looking for a last-minute gift idea. Give us a call, 940-658-3172. Ask for Jeff. Send us an email, goose at westtext.net. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this episode of the podcast, we are joined uh, once again by Jack Zimmerman. We had him on, uh, it's been over a year ago, Um Lost both of his legs over in overseas fighting for us. And uh, he has gone on to live an incredible life. There's no adventure that he's not willing to embark on. Great, great uh, inspiration. I mean, everybody needs his attitude. Great guy. I hope you enjoy this episode. He's got a book out, uh, 300 Seconds to Live. You can go to his website, jackzimmermanmn.com. You can get his first book. He's working on another book that uh, hopefully will be out by the end of the year or first of next year. So cool guy. Support him. Go check out his book. Good dude. Here he is, Jack Zimmerman. Welcome to the Big Honker Podcast, brought to you by our good friends at Double T British Kennels. I'm Jeff Stanfield with the world-famous Andy Shaver. That's me. How was your hunt this morning? Tough. Tough, tough, tough. No wind. And still killed 20. And a band. 
I'm on a roll. Killing That's your bands. fourth band this year? Fourth band and 10 hunts. And how many bands? We didn't kill but three last year, didn't we? Josh Moore said seven, but I don't remember that. So you were, we're over halfway there then, if Josh Moore's correct. Are they all banned in the same spot? Uh, two of them were for sure. Two of them for sure? And the other ones you don't know then? One of them I don't, two of them I don't know. One of them I'll find out. And who got the band today? Stefan. How'd he manage to do that? Pulled the Ron shell. Oh, good for him. So that's good. Dad, dad'd be happy. Dad's going, Ron's going to Washington. There you go. Good for dad. All right. With us today from the great state of Minnesota, minus all the Muslims, <laughs> Mr. Jack Zimmerman. Hello, Jack. How are you doing, sir? Good, good. I'm glad to be back. Guys. Glad, glad to have you back. We got a lot of, uh, we had a lot of people reach out after the first time. That, did, that we had you on. And. Did I see you on stage with Zach Brown, or am I mistaken? <laughs> no, you're 100% right. Uh, it was a great time. Uh, he's a great guy. His whole band, just great people. And uh, they brought me down there with the Independence Fund. Uh, they awarded me a new track chair uh, so I can stay uh, out in the outdoors and stay hunting. Uh, I got one almost 10 years ago already. And uh, <laughs> I wore that one out, so it's time for a new one. And uh, they awarded me one down there, and, and uh, they honored me uh, with a little chicken fry down there. It's pretty <laughs> awesome. What, a, what an experience to have. So you know? it's it's a new it's a new you said it's a new track chair. Yeah. So I, uh, I I'm typically in like a Segway is what I call it. It's a Segway base with like a seat built on top of it, modified, and uh, it gives me the ability to get around. Uh, it's from the organization called Segs for Vets. Uh, I was one of the first three recipients, and I've been one on been on one ever since, almost ten years ago. And um, the best thing about that is, is, is it's a nonprofit, and they can they can call their own shots. So when my wheelchair breaks, I can drive down there and have a new wheelchair in in uh, two hours instead of going through the whole VA process of, you know, getting a referral and then getting it sent to here and then having the whole, having it shipped in where everything there is in house. I don't have to deal with anything any you know of the referrals and all that where they can just fix my stuff and keep me moving. Now, did you say last time you were on, did you say that the VA has been a good experience for you? I mean, I don't have any like bad, bad things to say about them. I mean, I have my frustrations. I've had my bouts, uh, just getting a new truck here a few weeks ago and having to get it out or a few months ago and having to get it outfitted. That was a major struggle and, and a major frustration, but um, the healthcare stuff wise has been great. You know I mean? On that side of it, it's a lot of times just the benefit side. That's really right. a struggle. Cause you just hear so many different horror stories that it's hard to like gauge how bad it actually is, you know? Cause like you talk to some people and they're like, no, it's just, it's been nothing but great for me. And it sounds, it sounds horrible, but I feel like sometimes they treat me different than a lot of guys. Cause they don't want me in front of a camera on Fox news saying, you know, Hey, I've been treated wrong. You know, it's uh, you know, and I'm sitting there with missing my right. limbs, you know? Right. Yeah, so, so I, feel, I, I hate that. I hate that, you know, and, and I, that's why I always advocate for other veterans to make sure that they can get the care that they deserve and need yeah. as well. So you just you recently got back from South Dakota. You were pheasant hunting there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I didn't even tell you about the track chair. I think we got right off track with the segue. <laughs> but uh, uh, the track chair is a chair that I hunt off. It's a track chair that's built uh, right in Marshall, Minnesota here. Um, it's got tracks on it. Like it looks like a tank mm -hmm. almost. And, uh, that's what I hunt out of then. And uh, it gives me a better platform and more stability and the opportunity to go a lot more places that I wouldn't be able to go normally. So you just, it just whips you up right where you need to go. Yeah. It's, it's a, uh, it's a phenomenal machine. And it's something I use like out in South Dakota shooting pheasants, you know, it's uh, we go to flying J outfitters out there and, and John does a great job on his farm up there, you know, so there's always trails cut to get around and, and, uh, 
it makes it a really nice, enjoyable place for me to hunt with my with my buddies. You know, there's a bunch of other veterans that come up and and some other guys that are uh, the Fitzsimmons family that are always supporting us and uh, they're just to the great to the veterans community that invite us up there to go hunting with them. So the lifespan was ten years on your last chair. Is that about? Is that what they're supposed to last? About ten years? Because that surprises me. That's uh, a that's a long time. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I've had to replace a lot of parts and stuff like that on them. I'm not exactly easy on equipment. And I'm probably doing a lot of stuff <laughs> I shouldn't be. But uh, uh, if I learned anything about step on an ID, you know, it's uh, just skin. You know, you can you can uh, regrow it and fix it. So uh, have fun, you know. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I I I I try to take care of my equipment the best I can. But you know, it's my legs, and and you know, there's times where you know you're jumping off stuff or doing whatever you're not supposed to do with your <laughs> legs too. So uh, you know, you, stuff gets beat up, but for the most part, the equipment's pretty solid, and I don't really have too many problems with it. And uh, yeah, it lasts for the most have part. Have you ever been hunting and like ate it on 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 a chair, like tried to uh, stop too soon or something? Oh yeah, there's times, especially like when I was training dogs and that, I get close to water, and then you know, or going and trying to jump like uh, where the water's running through two ponds <laughs> or something like that. I try to skip across, the, you know, do the one track across kind of thing, and next thing you know you don't quite make it you're in the drink and all your dummies are falling on top of your head <laughs> you know the dog's looking at you, like, right now, you know? <laughs> then what do you do oh you just jump right back in you know that's kind of life you know you get knocked down you get back up and uh you know what happens when you're out pheasant hunting you know you find that uh bad yeah. hole next thing you know you drop crack in there and you're you're sitting on the ground and and you know you're doing the the golf dang it son of a gun you know <laughs> do uh do you have a backup chair so when you break this when you have another one that uses, or are you just completely waiting around for the next one to get here? No. So uh, I'm, uh, when my kids were little is kind of when it really started for me. Um, I have two segues that I use typically most of the time. And I leave one at the house here almost all the time. And I have an indoor and an outdoor chair. And, you know, there's so many nasty places yeah. out there in the world. You know, you're going into public bathrooms with your wheelchair. You're going into Walmart. You're going across these parking lots. And I'm watching my kids crawl around the floor, and I'm like, man, I'm dragging this stuff oh. in the house, you know? And uh, it was like one day of that, and uh, I had two chairs on, and that way I always keep one in the house that I just use in the house, and it's always clean, and I got my other chair to go out in the world and, and put I never on. have even thought about that. That's where people like us, or we forget. How, we, we, we don't realize how blessed we are, but I never have thought about that, about taking everything from the outside inside. That's a, that's a very interesting concept or thoughts. Well, of, you do. You just never thought about it. No, I your never. Ten, no, do you wear your tennis shoes in the house? Yes. Well, you just kick yeah. your shoes off. Yeah. 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 I, I don't shoes? even, I don't take my shoes off that much. Well, you're bringing everything from the outside in. I don't, yeah. but I, I wipe my feet off when I come in though. I bet I don't, I just don't think about it. But that's not sanitized. All the, all the new. We're the same though, Jeff. All the new guides that work for me though. They all take their shoes off when they come to the house. It's a northern thing. It is a northern thing. Because of mud, right? It's all that salt. Yeah, it's all that salt and stuff you're dragging in the house from all the sidewalks being salted and this and that. Oh. And, you know, it's always it's always frozen. And I don't there. even wear shoes in the summer around the house anyways because I'm outside and it's our yard doesn't have stickers. You got those Walmart feet at the end of the day. No, my yard's clean. <laughs> my yard's clean, so I don't have them. Walk, the I call that grocery store feet. There is nothing nastier in the world than seeing somebody at a fucking grocery store. People walk into stores with no shoes and shit like, oh, God. So bad. Mm. Nasty, nasty. <clears throat> what about your waiters? Like, do you get special waiters? Yeah, actually, a buddy of mine, uh, we had a boy, I had a friend that had Boyd, and 
they were going to China or something like that to, you know, where the waders were being manufactured. And, and uh, they, they, I took an old set of waders I had when I was a teenager. I jumped in them, and uh, we literally cut them off and zip-tied them exactly how I wanted them made. And uh, he took them, the zip-tied ones with him, and brought me back a brand-new pair of waders. And, and uh, so I got like a, like a jack sack, basically. <laughs> I jumped in on a waiter, you know. And, uh, you know, it's great. I use it all the time for all kinds of different uh, scenarios. It keeps me dry. Yeah. It keeps me warm. Um, that's the main thing, you know, I can, I can go out in the, you know, float me out in the saloon and put me on a, on a dog platform <laughs> and let me shoot off that thing all day. Uh, you know, or I can lay on the ground out in the cornfield and I'm still staying warm and I got that, that barrier, you know, and I used it when I went up in the mountains, uh, to kill that mountain mm-hmm. lion. I wore him up there, you know, and just pulled my jacket over the top. So I got no snow going down, you know, my back. God bless you. I'm telling you right now, you should be an inspiration for everybody that's in a wheelchair. You can do it. Not just, you just can't anybody. do everything that you want to do, but you do 99% of what you want to do. <clears throat> I'm sure there's some things yeah, I mean, you can't uh, do. I say it all the time. I, yeah, I say it all the time. You know, I still do everything I want to do. I just do it a little different. And, uh, you know, it's uh, maybe this is a, a call to action for everybody, but, you know, I was just up in North Dakota, and that was the first time that I got back up on the water. And uh, I got to shoot divers, you know, out in the water. And, and uh, there's definitely not – I'm not going to be able to go out there and do that myself like I could when I was a kid, right. you know. And, uh, uh, you know, if there's those guys out there that, you know, that used to hunt and they're getting a little bit older or whatever it may be, help those guys get back out in the field, whatever it takes. You know, even that one day in the fall, get those guys out because, I mean, it changed my life. I mean, it felt so good sitting back on the water, watching divers flying around shooting on the water, laughing with my buddies. And uh, I was back on the slough, and it, it, it brought me back to, you know, I, when I was laying in a hospital bed at one point in my life, I never knew if I was going to be doing that stuff ever again. And, uh, you know, you, you surround yourself with the right people, and, and uh, amazing things can happen. Tell, I don't think we talked about you killing the mountain lion last time, did we? Uh, I'm not sure if we did or not. That's a pretty, that's a pretty what wild story. What was that like? Um, so it all started out, uh, actually in, I was pheasant hunting out in South Dakota. Uh, me and my dad were out there and, uh, we got there and I, I got in the lodge and I threw my, my stuff down on, on the bed that I always stay in. And my dad comes in the room and he throws his stuff down on the other bed. And I'm like, oh man, I already know I'm in for a week and no sleep now, you know? And I'm like, come on dad, there's so many beds around it. Oh yeah. He's a big <laughs> and, uh, I had my dog in there with me and it was the first night. And I remember my dad went to bed and, uh, uh, I went in there and I was like, man, he's already at it. And I was trying to sleep for a while. And I looked at my dog and he's like, I need to be able to run tomorrow. Day. I need to get no sleep, you know? So I grabbed him and we went in a different bedroom and laid down. I was kind of scrolling on my phone and, and I seen this outfitter out in Wisconsin that was taking guys out like me in, in Buffalo County. And I said, hey, if you got a slice of grass that you'll let me sit on in Buffalo County, I'll, I'll take it. You know, I would just love to hunt anywhere in Buffalo County just to say I've hunted there. You know, it's so historic. I mean, so many big deer have been shot there. I would just love to sit an evening out there. And he's like, oh, we can do way better than that. And his, uh, his name was Kyle Bushman. He had uh, Hunting hunting for Heroes, I believe it was called. And uh, he's still running it. And um, I hit him up. And he's like, hey, we're doing a muzzleload hunt this fall. Come on out. And so I went out there and I started hunting with him. Uh, great group of people. And uh, he said, come back out here and hunt anytime you want. So it was, I just kept coming out there with my bow over and over, sitting out there trying to catch it. They're trying to shoot that 30-point monster, you know. And uh, he said, there's another guy coming from Montana that Kyle traded a mountain lion hunt with. That they were just gonna, He's going to let him come out here and hunt in Buffalo County. And then in return, he's going to ha- take him out to the mountains and try to catch a, or try to get a mountain lion, you know, and with his hounds. And so <clears throat> he said when he's, he was in the military, he was, in, uh, he was a Ford Observer, this and that. 
great guy. He's like, come on out and meet him. So when he came out to hunt in Wisconsin, I met him out there. And he's like, dude, we get, we just had we just kicked it off. Dan was his name. We just had the best time ever. And he's like, dude, we got to get you on a mountain line. He's like, as far as I know, we looked everywhere we could. There's never been a double amputee that's ever killed a mountain line. He's like, we got to do it, right? <clears throat> and I'm always up for an adventure. I'm always down for anything. You know, uh, let's just have a good time. And if it doesn't go well, we had fun doing it, you know? And so we drove all the way out there uh, the day after Christmas. Uh, we headed out there and... It was horrible. Snowstorm, of course, all the way across South Dakota. Uh, we finally make it out there. We have no idea where we're staying. Dan linked up with these guys on an online forum that had some land that we could hunt because we couldn't go out to his mountains because they were way too steep. So we're hunting like right on the South Dakota border in Montana, you know, right in Powder County. And uh, so we're hunting around there. Uh, we've never met these guys where we're staying at. Um we just, it's just a, it's just a very blind hunt, right? We're just going to go wing it. So we end up in Coal Strip, Montana. Um, we meet this guy, Wes, ends up being the, one of the nicest guys. He's got all of his friends there. They're more, more than happy and excited to help us. But I tell him, man, guys, I screwed up. I ordered my tag way too late. Uh, it didn't come in the mail Christmas, mm -hmm. of course. I'm like, I don't have my tag yet. You know, I got to go to the, I got to go to the gas station and print out a, a different one. So the next morning, uh, they head out. They're going to go start looking for tracks. I got to go to the hardware store to get my license. And uh, I get there, and it's this whole mess, right? Because they mailed me a license. They don't want two licenses oh, floating around right, out with there. With two tags. I'm like, right. oh, my gosh. I screwed this whole thing up. I have to sign an affidavit, do this whole thing there at the, at the hardware store. Finally, I'm on my way out there, get the phone call. They found a track already. I scheduled two weeks oh, for this hunt, you know? So we already found a good track, good cat. We want to cut this track and see what this cat is, you know. So they can't turn the dogs loose until I get out there with my license, you know. So we're going, trying to get out there as fast as we can. We pull up to this farm and we meet this guy named Buckshot. We're going out by his place out there. And he's, oh, yeah, the boys are back there. I heard they got a good track, this and that. Get back there. Hurry up. So I'm in the truck. I'm throwing on my waders. I'm trying to get all my gear on as fast as I can. And uh, we finally pull up. And as soon as we pull up and stop, put it in park, they cut the dogs loose, right? So I'm trying to get ready and all this. So I get ready so fast. Well, I'm, I've never been cat hunting before. It takes a good minute for them dogs to find that cat and put them up a tree. So I had plenty of time to get ready. And uh, it took them, I don't know, maybe it was an hour and a half, two hours, something like that to find the cat and get him up the tree. And uh, a couple guys put snowshoes on and started heading up there trying to find the, you know, once they had it bayed. Uh, they found the shortest route in, and it's kind of where we were sitting already. And uh, they will snowshoot in there, uh, got a fire going, and said, good cat, get, let's get Jack in here and, and get him on this cat. And uh, my friends put me in a sled and started <laughs> pulling me up the mountain, and I dug my arms as hard as I could, and they kept pulling. And we took rangers in a little ways, but uh, we got all the way up to the top of the divide, and uh, it was brutal up there, but we just kept sliding across, and guys keep trading out and pulling me across there. And eventually we got under the cat or got to the edge of the, this, this bluff. And uh, the cat was right in front of me in the tree. And there's probably eight guys up on this ledge with me. And the wind's blowing, the tree's swaying, and they're like, the cat's right here in this tree in front of you. And I'm like, all right. And I'm looking for this cat, and I'm looking for him, and I'm like, I don't see him. <laughs> I'm like, I don't like, I don't not see a 100-pound cat in this tree, you know? And they're like, it's right here in this tree. And I'm like, this tree right here? Yep, yep, this one. And I still couldn't see the cat, and finally I seen him. And uh, he moves around a little bit, and he's looking right at me, and... I swear to God, when he looked at me, we made we we made eye contact. I could feel where my soul sat, and was uh, he was just a incredible animal. And so this tree swam, 
And my buddy Kyle from Wisconsin hands me uh, his AR, and uh, and he's like, here you go, get get on it. And I got these shooting sticks, and I got them crossed up in front of me, and I got them dug in. And uh, I get my rifle set up on there, and I'm trying to get lined up on this cat, and he's swaying in the tree, and I'm getting ready. I'm like, man, these shooting sticks just aren't very stable. And so all of a sudden, my buddy Brandon, he was there, and uh, I believe in Iraq, he lost his leg below the knee. And uh, he all of a sudden, I, I'm like just complaining about these shooting sticks. I can't get a good rest. So he pops his leg <laughs> off below the knee. That's it next to me. I dropped the magazine well in his leg. And I pulled the trigger. It was just perfect. It was absolutely perfect. I hit the cat in the chest, in the front, in the shoulder. He drops out of the tree, takes off up the drainage, goes another, like, 1,000 yards. And I felt so bad because I looked at my buddies, and I was like, well, boys, I guess we're moving again. I felt so bad. It could all have been over right there, but I guess I wanted to pull me a little further in the sled. So we had to go up this next drainage, and uh, he went up a tree right away again, and, and we, we got him there. And uh, the cat's laying up there dead in the tree, and, my buddies look at me and said, "Hey, we got you this far. You got to oh, get him out of the tree now." <laughs> and uh, and I thought for sure the only chance I had was cutting that tree down with an axe. That was the best chance I had of getting that cat out of the tree. But they crawled up there, pushed it out for me, and we got some good pictures up on the mountain and had a few beers. And it was a it was a long slide. Then where the that cat weigh? I'm looking at it right now. He was about 130 pounds, 145 pounds. Something that is like that. a solid ass 130 pounds of pure muscle with claws and teeth. It was. It was just amazing. Um, I was so grateful to, to harvest him. Uh, but um, when I was laying on the battlefield and I see my whole life flash before my eyes, you know, I see me and my buddies playing baseball together. And I see me and my buddies riding around in the car or go walking out into the slough. And it didn't matter that we weren't hunting in the best slough in the whole world. You know, it, it didn't matter that we weren't, you know, playing in Yankee Stadium, you know. And uh, it was kind of the same thing up on that mountain. It didn't matter you know, that we got the, the uh, a beautiful cat. It was more or less the experience that I got to share with the guys that I was with, you know, and that's kind of what meant the most to me. It was a bunch of guys that went through some stuff overseas together, and here we are, you know, up on a mountain celebrating, you know, what we set out to do that day. Of, uh, and there was so much adversity in our way, you know, just the elevation that we had to climb, you know, uh, trying to find a good cat, um, the conditions, you know. There's so much adversity in the hunting world that we face every single day between wind and weather and everything else, let alone not being able to be as mobile as right. you want to be, you know. And to have these guys, you know, up on the mound with me and, and uh, defeating all that adversity and, and uh, that resilience, you know, kind of when, once, you, once you're sitting on top of that mound, you kind of think to yourself, what can I do in this yeah. world? You when know? it looked at you, like, what was that like? Was that eerie feeling? Because, like, I've never, I've never seen a yeah. cat out in the wild. Yeah, it was super eerie because you know that that is the baddest right. creature out in, out in those woods, you know, and he yeah. knows it too. And uh, I was just lucky I had right. the gun. Yeah. And you know what's really amazing is 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 you, you you hit on what's important. It's not about killing stuff. It's being with your friends and your loved ones, and the freedom that you fought for. So we all have that ability to do that because we're we're very fortunate as Americans. We every day we go to bed and we don't think we should thank God that we're Americans every day because of the freedoms we have to get to do stuff. Because there's a lot of places they can't do what you got to do. Just. Very yeah, blessed. I mean, just to even have the right to be able to have as many guns in the safe as you want, so you can take whatever shotgun you want out to go shoot whatever species of ducks that you want to shoot, or you know, whatever big game that you want to hunt that day. You know, we have that privilege, we have that ability to do those things, and you know, we don't have to ask somebody permission to go out and hunt. We can just do those things. You know, obviously when they're in season and whatnot, but 
you know, we're, we, we're, we're lucky to have that ability to have the freedom to go and, and do those things. And, and we have the rights. You can just do. throw a fine line <laughs> them poor bastards in Canada. They can't even have a pistol. Yeah. And I don't think, I think there's a lot of places they can't have long rifles anymore. We are very, we're very yeah, fortunate. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a scary thought. I mean, if you look at, you know, where, where the world's at and where it's going and everything going on and, Ukraine and everywhere else and you know in history you know you've heard it before that you know there's a reason that a lot of people um don't look favorably upon invading this place <laughs> you know uh uh you know we're uh, we're armed to the teeth i think they say something like the wisconsin deer hunters is like one of the largest armies in the whole world size wise if you consider them one you know uh you know we're just uh we there's still this country is still full of so many incredible people that that believe in this place and and uh, and like for me for instance you know i still today see so much in this country we're fighting for and and uh i don't think there's a better place in, in the world than america and we can't go any further west so we just gotta gotta fix what we got here and and work on the things that we don't believe are right Our forefathers here. were geniuses for the most part they did miss yeah. they missed the senate term, term limits. limits that was the only thing they missed and congress term limits well, that's what i mean that's what i yeah, mean congress other uh, I don't think people lived that right. long back yeah, then. Exactly. <laughs> people didn't want to be a fucking politician back then. There was no money in it. You were taking, you were leaving your job to volunteer your time to make the country a better place. And they used the brightest people because most of the people that were in Congress then or Senate were people that could afford to leave their their business, which was successful, and be gone for two months. Well, nowadays you got people going on there. They're just born into it, and they go one generation to another. And it's all about being wealthy. But man, they were. They're, 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 everything other than term limits, the right to bear arms, or the electoral college and stuff, those were things that were really well thought out when they did that. Was the, elect the electoral college wasn't then, though? Was it? It had to be. I think it's been a con in the Constitution. Ooh, I'd have to look. I'd have I to look that But I do believe that I do believe this country does need a sense of like national service, that everybody has to serve a certain of, and I think that there's a lot of opportunities that to just make our country an incredible place. You know, I mean, you could serve on a parks committee in your community and serve, you know, 24 hours a year, you know, one day a year, you know, total of time that we could just commit to this country. You know, you could, we could commit to um, the wetlands, you know, that could be your thing that you commit to that you spend your time on in this country. And you do that for two years, one day a month. And every, if everybody did that, just think of how incredible this place would be and what a small sacrifice it would be for yeah, all and, of us. and then it would it would give people the right to bitch more you know what i mean like it's it's so frustrating yeah. when you hear somebody complaining i'm on school board here and it's so frustrating when and, and we don't get a whole lot of complaints but whenever you do it's coming from the people that never sacrifice any of their time for or they're not on anything they're just you know they just sit around and kind of bitch about what other people decide well go run you know if you've got all these great ideas I go run I don't think there's anybody that wouldn't disagree that whenever somebody has a little skin in the game, it means a little yeah. more to them, you know? And I think that if everybody had, uh, had, uh, had, had to contribute to the country in some aspect of, you know, you, I mean, there's a million things that you could pick for national service of yeah. some sort. And, uh, you know, if everybody committed to doing a little bit of something, I just, I just think that what this country could be with such a small We sacrifice. have a park here. And everybody, Jeff was mayor for a long time of our small town. <clears throat> everybody bitches about the park and the cemetery not being kept up. But when you look at all the stuff that the city employees have to do, and we don't have a whole lot of guys that work for our city in the first place, the cemetery is kind of the last thing because it wasn't even our property to begin with. It, it fell into the city's lap of, yeah. hey, 
by the way, now you got all these acres you got to maintain. But <clears throat> and the people and the people hanging out there aren't really complaining. Right, yeah, much. no, they don't care at all. They haven't they haven't said one complaint. <laughs> but people co- will complain about the park being uh, too grown up. Well, mow it. I mean, mow go mow it if it bothers you that bad. It ain't that it ain't that big. You don't have a but it is our, it's not that it's the city's responsibility. It's our yeah. responsibility. It's our community. And if we don't do it, then we have to spend the tax dollars to be able to to have it done. And so you have to sacrifice one way or the other. And that's what I mean is I think about if you had if you if you and ten of your friend of your of the of the dads in your class got together and said we're going to do our one day or half of our one day of national right. service and we're going to go put in six hours today at the park and and we're going to build out the pavilion you know and just start building it. and that was your yearly project of you and those guys i mean you have a brand new mm-hmm. pavilion done by your, through your national service and it made your community better and you know i mean it's as simple as that you know stuff people like that. want to bitch but they don't want to do nothing I, w- I was mayor for a long time <coughs> excuse me and that was one of the biggest things i'd get people bitch at me about they's like well we don't do nothing to the cemetery well first of all our small town is a lot, a lot like a lot of small towns. We are big. We've had a huge loss in sales tax. People don't understand that. They think the city can print money like the federal government. Like the federal government can do anything they want to. They just print more money. Well, a small town in West Texas right. can't do that. Our cemetery does not look good. I don't have anybody that's in my immediate family that's buried at that cemetery. Nobody. At all. I don't go to the cemetery ever. I drive by it every day going to the lodge. But there are people that's got their family members there, but they're not going to spend 15 minutes to go to their eight by eight plot where their loved ones at and clean it or or do whatever it needs to do. My wife's dad is buried at a cemetery 20 miles from here. She goes over there four times a year. She takes flowers, does whatever it is. They do a pretty good job of upkeep, but the people in Knox city don't realize if everybody really wanted to contribute, if every person's water bill, they'd add of extra hundred dollars a year on, they could afford to have someone pay to take care of the cemetery. They don't want to do that, though. That's not worth their $100 skin in the game. They would, It never, ever would pass because they don't want to do it. And it's that way everywhere. Cemeteries, parks, we spend $15,000 a year on a city pool that, that we lose. The city of Knox City loses $15,000 a year every year on a city pool. Every single year, but we provide it for our so the kids will have a place. People don't realize how much it costs to keep a city, a city running, no matter how big it is, but you're going to have to put some skin in the game. Like you said, and people don't want to do that. And the people that bitch never want to run for stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming every small town is like the one we live in. I spent my time. I was mayor. I was judge. I've been president of school board or not school board of little league. Michelle's been booster club. We've done our time. Our kids are raised now. It's young people's times, but people do not want to volunteer to help. They just want to bitch. And we need more people in our country to take pride like you said, the national day, I think every kid, I did not serve in the military, but I think every person that graduates high school today should have to do a two year commitment to our federal government, go to boot camp, learn a skill that you can do two years and you're out and you can do what go on with your life. I think our country would be a whole lot better off if we did that. First of all, for the 10, 15% of kids that are going to go to college and do something with their life that are overachievers, that, that those kids probably don't need to do that. But for the 85% of the rest of the United States, it would do you some good to learn discipline at an early age. And I really, I really believe that out of my three boys, Andy's the only one of them that did not need to go to the military. Andy was disciplined and done everything he was supposed to do. Zach and Payne, Payne is in the military. Zach would have probably been better off to go to the military for two years too. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, the military is just an incredible place. I mean, I mean, just going through basic training, the things that you learn there, uh, just about yourself will, will change your life immensely. You know, they break you down and, and make you uh, look at your weaknesses and and uh, admit them. And, and then all you have to do is start working on those to to become a better teammate. You know, it, 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 admitting that you're that you're weak sometimes is a really hard thing to do. But until you identify those weak points, you know, you're never going to get better, you know, and. And if it's discipline or it's this or it's that, you know, they're going to identify it and say, hey, this is where this is where you need to get better. And by the time you leave that place, your chest is so, so <laughs> far out in the air and you're so confident in yourself and you're willing to you you're willing to go do anything. You know, you put yourself to the test and and uh, you just leave there thinking you're really uh, you're really something. And then you get to your unit and then you, you realize that you got a long <laughs> ways to go yet. But uh you know, it was uh, going going through the military was honestly one of the best experiences of my life. Uh, I met uh, some incredible people, but really, what it did is it really opened the, the my eyes up to the world, and and uh, it, it gave me an opportunity to really see what the what was really out there and the opportunities and possibilities. And it taught me really how tough I was and resilient. And you know, as people, that's well, we need to go learn those things about ourselves, or we fall into this pattern every day of getting really comfortable and complacent, doing the same things every day, and before you know it, our life is is uh, getting closer and closer to the end, and we realize that we, we really need to do something. And it's yeah. too late, you know. Um, and I think it would it would give young people a chance to see how blessed they really were to be born in America. You know, I mean, yeah, you're you're not you're not in Afghanistan. You know, you're not an eight year old trying to figure I, it out in over there. I don't know. If we talked about it last time. We talked about me, oh, the firearm safety thing. Me starting that up with seeing those kids. So when I was in Afghanistan, we seen some kids get wounded over there. They stepped on an ID and they brought them to our base. And um, I remember, you know, those kids getting put on the chopper. And and uh, the one kid was lifeless, and the other one was pretty beat up and missing a limb and stuff. And and uh, it, it really it really bothered me that they got wrapped up in something that they had no business being involved in. You know. And I thought those kids never had an opportunity to make a a, a life for themselves. They never had a a chance to go out and do anything with their lives, you know? And uh, I said, when I get home, I'm going to make sure that those kids' lives don't go to waste, you know, that they had some kind of purpose in life, and I'm, I'm going to try to live out a purpose through those or for those kids, you know? And I didn't know what that was going to be. Uh, I ended up getting wounded, you know, flown to San Antonio, rehabbing down there, and then moving back up here to Minnesota. When I got up here to Minnesota, you know, my love for the outdoors is, is something that um, not only healed me after getting wounded, um, that's my place that I chose to heal, um, but it's where I, I grew up as well. I mean, when I was a kid, there was nowhere else that I wanted to be than the outdoors. One of the most impactful experiences in my life or rewarding experiences in my life or achieving uh, uh, moments of my life was getting my firearm safety certificate. I mean, I can go get a big game license now. You know, I mean, it was a, it was a big deal, a moment for me in my life, and I wanted to be a part of that with with kids, you know, uh, again someday. And so when I moved back here to Minnesota, I, that's what I did. I, I went and got licensed to go to the DNR to go start teaching kids firearm safety. And I joined the team here in my community and, and eventually um, uh, led the, 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 the group for a long time that was teaching firearm safety. And when I was doing that, um, we had some kids that we typically had it on a Saturday, but some kids had a science fair. So we took a couple of kids out on a Friday and uh, there was another school out there doing trap shooting. And, uh, the, my, the Cleveland kids then said, hey, we want to do that. And uh, I said, well, let's get it done. So I called a friend that was on the school board. They put it on the agenda. And uh, next thing you know, uh, I'm at a school board meeting. Uh, a trap team gets approved. And they're going, well, who's going to coach this thing? And I kind of realized everybody's <laughs> looking at me. And I go, well, I guess I'm coaching high school trap shooting team now, you know. And 
it gives me an opportunity. It gave me an opportunity to uh, spend time with kids, um, help them realize how lucky they are to have the opportunities they do. Uh, make sure that um, that they're shooting, that, that they know that they can shoot as high mm-hmm. as they want in this world. That they don't, they don't have to go to school to be a, a, a sheet rocker if they don't want to. They can go to school to go to. You can go to space if you want to go to space, man. You just have to make that decision, commit to it, and actually do it. You know, like. You can do whatever you want in this world. It's just, you know, you have to go out there and find out things that you don't want to do, too. I think that was one of the biggest things that I I learned after being wounded was all the things in my life that I didn't want to do for a long time. I've kind of found the things that I want to do in life, you know, and it takes a long time to do that. But coaching those kids gave me the opportunity to spend some time with them. And and it gave me a chance to it gave me a, a, a sense of healing when I when I could coach these kids and think about those kids in Afghanistan that I seen that got wounded and. And to think that my school has a trap shooting team now because of, of the sacrifice that those kids. Was that made. pretty common over there to see kids that just kind of stepped in the wrong spot? No, not typically. Um, <clears throat> you know, where we were at was really the heart of the Taliban. So the people that were in those communities were were very familiar with the people that were that were the Taliban that were there. You know, so they had a very good rapport of don't let anybody hang out mm. in that area. Um, typically, not having IEDs hot if they if, if we weren't around you know and things like that was was my perception of it and um but no typically whenever you've seen a stream of children and women leaving the backside of a village you pretty much knew that was going to be going on the front you know and that's why everybody's getting out so they would know taliban would come in women and children would all leave and then yeah they'd say hey yeah the americans are coming you guys you know you might as well want to get out, out of the here. back. I was watching uh, 13 Hours the other day, and <clears throat> that was one of the things, you know, they're driving, trying to get to the uh, ambassador or whatever, and it's like they had no idea who was on their side or who wasn't because it's just like everybody over there has a gun, and, like, they were looking for one division that was supposed to be friendly, but they're like, I don't fucking know if they're on our side or not. Did that movie piss you off? Yeah, and there's uh – we had a lot of different angles of that too. Not only did we have uh, the Taliban to worry about, but also we had the Afghan national army with us all the time too, you know, and those guys don't really aren't vetted, you know, they're just people I volunteered to join. But if you were the Taliban, uh, you'd probably want some of your guys to join the national army to see what's going on inside, you know? And, uh, I was always a concern, you know, we lived in the same compound with them, you know, um, and at the same time, there's a lot of what we call blue on green uh, going on there, too, where, they, you know, the the, national, the Afghan National Army would turn on the Americans, you know, and, uh, you know, we're arming yeah. them, giving them weapons and walking with them. It's a it's a it's a it's a different situation that you're put in, you know, and and there's times, you know, where. You know, when we were first got there, you know, we're going to buildings and clearing them. And, and after a while, you know, and you've seen your friends get banged up and stuff, you're, you're kind of telling them, hey, man, you go in that building, you can you can go in there for right. your country, you know? Yeah, that's that's one of those things, man. Like, we're the world's police and it's our, you know, we're fighting this war for them, just like you said. It's like, why should why should we be the one to go clear that building? It's your country. Did, did you like that movie? Yeah, it was. I mean, it was a good movie. It yeah. pissed me off. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Made me madder than hell. It was a great movie. The right. movie was good. It just pisses me off the way they've covered up all that shit. And it makes me mad the way we use our soldiers, our politicians. It makes me so fucking pissed. And it just, uh, all over, just makes me mad that we, we continue to do this over and over and over. And I want to know when we started doing this, because I don't think we did it in World War One, and I don't think we did it in World War Two, Because in World War Two we didn't have rules of engagement. 
Well, they did. They had rules of engagement in World War II. Oh, yeah, for sure. It was Absolutely. just you yeah, had to define yeah. uh, your enemy had a uniform. It's pretty clear enemy. Right. But yeah, yeah, we were going to kill them motherfuckers. Well, they had a they had a you could tell who the bad guy was. Right. But nowadays, uniform, but since yeah. the Korean War, we've changed that in Vietnam. You yeah. know, but Vietnam really changed just the landscape of war and how the whole world looked at war in a sense. And really, Vietnam, those guys probably took those fighting tactics from, you know, the Taliban who have been doing the, the guerrilla warfare for, for all of time. You know, I mean, those, that's kind of how Afghanistan has been as a tribal warfare. And, and you know, they you know, people can learn a lot of stuff from those guys. But that's what kind of Vietnam was like, the same thing, that tribal warfare of, of pockets of people and, and uh, as well as. A, fight, a fighting force, you know, and, and Iraq and Afghanistan was brutal because you have a civilian population weaved in with the enemy, and the enemy is part of the civilian population at the same time if they want to be. Yeah, the the Afghan war, people forget that Russia fought Afghanistan for a decade. And we we were fun. Yeah, that day that I got, that day that I got wounded, um, the first IED I found that day, um, that, that was, that was a berm that I was in was pushed up to fight the Russians off of. Really? So it had been there that yeah. long? Yeah, I mean, just they they built a berm there, and I mean, I'm, I, you know, I, it's just you know, they can't really move it. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's so hard to move soil. They don't have equipment and stuff. So once it's there, it's not really going to move. You know? Was it still capable of, or just the berm was there, or did they put that out? Yeah, it was probably like a, it was probably like a six or eight foot berm. You know, they're just on the edge of town, so that they had something to fight off or to, to put something between the north and their village, you know, something for them to some, some cover. I went Turkey hunting in Tennessee and on one of the properties, there was a civil war, uh, skirmish line built out of like rocks yeah. and stuff. It was one of the most surreal experiences that I've ever had because like on either side of it, there's kind of a Creek on one side and then there's like this big open field in the other. And it's like, dude, there's a lot of guys yep. that met their end right here, right here on this line that I'm standing on. Yep. It's uh war was uh war's kind of turned into a kind of like how people do it online now, you know, it's kind of you take your pop shots and you run, you know, yeah. and that's kind of what war's turned into, you know, you put the you put things in that you don't even have to be there for like IEDs and stuff, you know, not where it's like we're going to go line up on the battlefield and shoot each other. You know, I think there's a I think there's a very fine middle ground there, you know, and I feel like uh World War 2 is probably the the what you know they you know i don't want to say the greatest war there's no such thing as a great war but it's probably the most fair fought war right. of, of, of our time or you know of our of our era you know i would i would agree with that 100 percent because world war one was a lot of trench warfare but they bring in a bunch of mustard gas and stuff like that and world war ii was basically we fought their tanks against our tanks our fighters against their fighters man fought man and since then it's not like that at all who's what it's just kind of a Full out brawl. Yeah. yeah. What's crazy is the gentlemanly way the English fought in the 16 and 1700s. Everybody lines up. We just line up and fucking like start c- shooting. Civil War. Well, Civil War, they still did more commando type stuff than they did. did. They? But the the Indians taught the the British that they were doing it the wrong way in the in the right. in the colonists, and we we fought more right. ghetto <laughs> commando type against them. But they just wanted to line up in red uniforms and do it as a gentleman. Them and the French. Killed thousands and thousands or millions of each other every year doing that shit. Do you guys ever think a nuke will go off again? Yes. Um, a suitcase one will. What do you mean? They've got suitcase Why? nuclear bombs that are not real big, but would knock out probably five miles of a city block. Is that is that right on about how big they are? Or are they bigger than that? 
Oh, I have no idea. I have no idea. I, I try to stay away from bombs. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> I had a bad experience. I think that the uh, I think uh, a suitcase nuclear weapon is good for about five miles, maybe. And um, I think that one day we'll have somebody, some jackass terrorist will do it, or some anti-American ex dipshit that thinks he's going to change the world. Timothy McVeigh type deal will do something like that. EMPs worry me. You don't think we'll send it? No, I don't. I don't know. I don't know if. I don't know that we would ever. I'm not going to say ever because I I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think China really wants to fight with us in a war, and I don't think Russia does either. I could see some country like Iran or Iraq doing it. Hey, if it's up to me right now, fucking nuke the shit out of Iraq one day or Iran. I can't remember which one. Is it Iran that we're having so much trouble with right now? Fucking. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. Fucking wipe them fuckers out. Turn that whole area into glass would be okay with me. But take all of our troops out of the Middle East forever. Bring them home. Glass that whole fucking area over there and never fuck with them again. Don't buy oil from them. Don't ever do anything with them again. Treat them like third world bastards is what I would do. But that, but we won't do that. But I don't think our government would do it unless someone dropped one on us or done one. But I think that if we have one, yeah. it will be one of those suitcase nuclear weapons that the russians have lost that they don't have they don't know where they're at i think that i think that's probably a, a fair assessment because i don't i don't think anybody has that we have the ability to shoot a lot of stuff down you know we'd be able to detect a lot of things like that i don't think anybody would really want to shoot anything towards right. us i just don't think it's in their best interest because no it's not be a lot back you know um but uh i could definitely see something like that happening but that's one of the things in this world that really uh makes me super uneasy i just don't even like the fact that they're out there you know but i understand why they are and, and uh you know, the power that they can bring but um something like that would be what what yeah. about somebody like pakistan kill shooting on one off in india you know yeah i mean yeah i mean i think that's i think that's something more realistic of when you're going to see a, a nuke go off uh this whole israel thing makes me super nervous too you know there's a lot of there's a lot of guys over there you know, saber rattling right now, and and there's some stuff that's going to have to happen. You know, uh, Israel seems like they're pretty pretty set on going ahead and going forward with with taking out Hamas and that, and um, and that's a rough area right now. It's a bad place to be. Yeah, I would not feel comfortable with my family being in Israel anywhere right now. I would want them home. Uh, that those people. What's funny is is when you watch the media, and the media is so torn because most of America is on Israel's side, but we got some people that are on the Palestinian side. And they talk about Israel's trying to take all the land and stuff. Have you seen a map of the fucking Muslim world con con compared to Israel? Mm -mm. Israel's a fucking like a, a little. If you look at a map, it's a very minute, tiny part of the whole planet. They're surrounded by Muslim countries, you know. And I and that's where they wanted to go in the first place, you know. I mean that uh, that's kind of spot they get. Say, hey, I'm gonna kind of put you here, and you know, it's it's tough because I I think it's a simple and I. I mean, this isn't my words. I've heard it, and it, it stuck with me and resonated with me. And I don't remember who said it, but it was simple as, as if Israel stopped shooting today, they would be wiped off the map. Yeah. And if it was the other way around, you know, uh, there would be peace. You know, if, if they just stopped shooting at Israel, there would be peace. And it's as simple as that. You know, I mean, Israel's not the agitator. And, and uh, you know, it's a uh, it's, uh, really... Uh, bad situation and and i just really hope that we don't get involved with it we're, we're going to because there's too much money over there and that's what it's about it's money um do you, you ever heard the story about what black jack pershing did to the muslims 
Yeah, I did. Is that the one with the pig's blood? Yeah, I dipped the had. They set up a. I guess it was a firing squad, and he had twelve Muslim mercenaries there, and they dipped them in pig blood, and they shot eleven of them in the guts and let them bleed to death, and one of them let let go and said, if we have any trouble out of you, we're going to do the same thing to you that we did to them. They got the note on that, and they didn't have problems with Muslims for a long time. Yeah, that's uh, that was like down the Caribbean or something like that, wasn't it? I think it was over in uh, the bar- on the Barbary Coast, I think. Oh, yeah, 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 you're right, yep. But if, yep. if you read back on any of Thomas Jefferson's writings from the mid-late 1700s, they had a lot of problems with Muslims in the 1700s, too. A lot of them it's, said they were the uh, most vile, vicious, evil people in the whole world, and I don't think that's changed. The problem is they're outnumbering everybody now. Every place in the world, if you look, if you look at Tripoli, if you look at Benghazi, if you look at all of those places, those were thriving, nice places in the early 1900s. They were Christian countries or Christian cities. I don't know much about history over there, but they were really nice places. But once the Muslims come in and take over, they turn them into shitholes. And that's the same thing you can say for Dearborn, Michigan. You can say for that area, that's little Somalia in Minneapolis. All of those places are that way. No, definitely the world's definitely changing. And, uh, you know, uh, we, we need to, we need to figure out what's, you know, how we're going to move forward and how we're going to, you know, be able to all exist, you know, and like, this is what America is supposed to be is a place where everybody can come together with their own ideas and, worship whoever they want to worship you know and as long as you're not just shoving it in anybody else's face or face face or uh you know trying to push it upon anybody or you know anything like that i mean it's as simple as you know uh i don't want to i don't want to have problems with anybody else you know but at the same time leave me alone you know it, it goes both ways you know but uh i just i just feel like uh right now at this point in time i feel like we're moving further from further from peace Mm. all the time yeah 100 percent. it's it's a terrible world when the christian countries or the christian united states is a christian country now we've got a lot of different religions in here that aren't christian and the christians can can get along or the people have spun off christians most of those can get along because it doesn't teach hatred you know, the Mormons were a pretty wicked bunch, and they killed a lot of people to do that to push their agenda. Well, at there's times. plenty of Christian, yes, there are, but the average yeah. Christian person believes in forgiving and get along with your neighbor and stuff. The other religion doesn't believe in that, they want to kill all the Christians, and that's where we've come into a crossroads like that. Is you've got some people that are really out there that they think their reward is to kill Christians and they're going to get 72 virgins and live happily ever after. What's well, hard to it's hard to sit down and negotiate with someone that thinks that way. They don't think the same no, way we do. And they're, they're so firm in their beliefs. You yes. know, it's, that's, uh, you're not going to move them off it. You know, that's the problem. No, it's a, it, and that's not going to change. And it's gotten, and it's going to get worse and worse and worse. The Catholics, I mean, how much, how many people have died over the Catholic religion over the years? A bunch. I mean, yeah. that's pretty, you know, so it's where we are. And it's a shame that the United States uses our soldiers as pawns in this game for po- politicians and for money. And that we'll do whatever we're asked, you know, it's, um, you know, I mean, that's what we're here to do. We're volunteers for our country. And, and, um, I just hope that we don't find ourselves in a situation like a uh, Vietnam where we're blaming our soldiers for actions that they were asked to do. Yeah. You know? We police them too much though. You know, I think it was Marcus Luttrell at one time said, uh, I think he was talking about ISIS when that first popped up. And he said, you want to take care of ISIS? He said, you send my boys over here, take the chains off, and we'll get it done in no time. Yeah, <laughs> that's know? exactly. But that's what we should do. 
We shouldn't have to go to conflict with these wars and all these rules of engagement. We shouldn't have them. If we're going to go over and we're going to take over this and conquer and do this, and we need to freaking do it. I mean, we did that in Japan. I mean, we, yeah. we they they pushed they did they t- hit us first. Has the United States ever started a war? Mm-hmm. No, we've had some proxy wars we're doing like this shit in Ukraine and crap. But have we actually ever lobbed the first attack on anybody? I don't right. think we have. I mean, it's not really our mo, I guess. No. no, and I don't know why anybody'd want to fuck with us. I mean, that's like you're fucking with a rich guy that can whip your ass. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, are we are we Jake Paul? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there the you Jake go, Paul. God, that's embarrassing to think of for us. What were the rules of engagement whenever you were over there? Um, you know, uh, it was a really tough time when I was there. Uh, basically, if uh, they dropped their they dropped their rifles, you know, that was pretty much the end of the fight. Um, you know, they could, you know, so a lot of times, you know, you see a haystack and you think, I bet there's a rifle in there, and that guy could be farming. And he feels like it's going to work for him. He'll pick up that rifle. If not, he's going to keep stacking hay. You know, and there's not a whole lot you could do about it. Jeez. We're like, you know, but uh, you know, we couldn't fire unless we were fired upon. You know, if there's a guy running off the rifle until he shoots at you, that's it. Like, you can see the rifle, and until he fires that, cracks yeah. that first one off, it's just we just yeah. gotta wait. And if you, and if uh, you better be, you better be certain too, because I mean, there's uh, there's always somebody watching, there's always something, you know, there's always eyes on. And, and uh, if you don't follow the rules of engagement, you will find yourself. See, and that's bullshit. Who would, who would be watching? Would there be like drones overhead or what? ISR, yeah. There's always a blimp in the air watching us patrol. And, and uh, yeah, there's, uh, you know, usually, you know, there's planes flying over, there's helicopters, there's, you know, satellite. There's always something, somebody's always watching, you know. So when, so when you uh, were wounded, I mean, they were they able to, like, get help? from above or, or like they saw everything happen from above basically i'm sure yeah i mean i'm sure it was all all recorded somewhere you know and uh i've never seen it don't <laughs> don't really care to see it uh you know but yeah i mean i'm sure it's out there i'm sure the taliban has video of it too you know so from the time do you, i mean i'm sure time kind of was a slippery thing at that at that point in your life but whenever you stepped on the the, the ied and had everything, you know, kind of go off around you. How long was it until they were chopping you out? Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, everything, everything had to be perfect that day for me to still be here. You know, uh, from the time I stepped on the IED, uh, me laying in that crater, um, my guys getting to me, uh, tourniqueting my limbs off, uh, while the other guys were trying to keep the Taliban back. Um, it was 36 minutes, and I'm so lucky that it was as fast as it was. Um, there was another unit that had hit an IED a few clicks east of us, and they had some guys banged up, but nobody, um, you know, uh, extremely wounded, not nobody urgent, you know. And uh, so when they heard that my nine line come across being called up as a quadruple amputee, um, you know, they just diverted then and went over and picked me up first. And, um, if it wouldn't have been for that, you know, I didn't have, I didn't have another two minutes, you know, before I got put on that chopper. If I wouldn't have got the fluids I got when I did, I would not be here today. So you were 120 seconds, excuse me, 120 seconds away, basically. I was at the end of my life when I heard that chopper coming. And when I heard that chopper coming, I reached down with everything I had inside me to draw in one more Mm -hmm. breath. Um, because 
I had to. I mean, those guys have been working on me out in that field for so long. They risked their lives to get to mine, running, you know, dodging IEDs to get over to me. And um, uh, for me not to give my absolute most uh, and dig as deep as I possibly could in that moment um, would have uh, been an absolute, um, would have made me the worst friend in the world and worst teammate mm-hmm. in the world. And, and uh, you know, would have been a, it's been horrible, you know, to try to, I mean, I wouldn't have lived with it the rest of my life, obviously, but, you know, just looking back at it now, uh, I'm extremely thankful for, with myself for the choice that I made that day to dig as deep as I did to draw on that one more breath. Uh, so those guys give them a chance to get me off the battlefield that day, because uh, just as much as it, it would have been horrible to die that day, um, my friends don't have to live with that day of me dying the rest right. of their lives either. So what is it like knowing that you're drawing your last breath if something doesn't change drastically? Well, when I was laying there on the ground, I had a, uh, I had an epiphany, you know, like with, with, with God in a sense, you know. Um, I knew whether I lived or I died, I was going to be okay. I accepted death laying there on the battlefield. Obviously, I didn't want to mm-hmm. die, but you don't have any legs. You don't have any arms. You can't do anything for yourself. Uh, you're kind of taking uh, fate out of your own hands, literally, you know, and uh, you have to you have to kind of turn everything over at that time. And, and you have to believe in other people, you know, just like you need somebody to believe in you at times. You have to believe in other people at times, too. And and I had to believe that those guys were going to do everything they could to get me off the battlefield that day. You know, you have to you have to fully you know turn that over to them and you have to find that peace from from God above and, and, uh, you have to accept the fact that today might, might be your life. So you found peace in that moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, uh, uh, you can, you can die panicking or you can, you can die in peace, you know, it's up to you. Right. Was there ever a time where you were panicking? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, when I first see my, when I first sat up, cause I was trying to get out of there and my right leg was gone. Uh, yeah, I was, I was, I was more like, Holy, you know, that thing is, I'm a way worse shape than I thought. I saw my arms were jacked <laughs> up, you know? And uh, I thought there was somebody else there with me uh, because there was so much blood, you know? And that was uh, that was kind of why I was like, oh, I can't all be fine, <laughs> you know? Because I'm, I'm out then, you know? And, uh, yeah, I mean, that was, a, that was a scary moment, you know? But your buddies are, are pretty much telling you to live, you know, <laughs> they're, they're not letting you try they're, they're doing everything they can in their power to keep you awake and, and coherent as well. You know, did they ever get, did they give you morphine on the battlefield? I didn't have, uh, I, from the time that I stepped on until the time that I was in an induced coma, I never received anything for pain. Ooh, what's that like? Uh, you know, it's just a general hurt, you know, it, it hurts, you know, I mean, you're in pain, it hurts everywhere. Um, uh, but at the same time, uh, you can't, you don't really focus on one spot. Just every, everything <laughs> just hurts, everything's hurts. a problem. Yeah. It just kind of hurts, you know? And honestly, pain was the last thing I was focused on. You know, pain isn't really a, a, a real thing. It's a thought in a sense, you know, you can make pain go away in your mind. You can ignore it. Um, people live through pain every day, you know? And, uh, that's kind of why I really wasn't focused on pain. You know, there's bullets flying around, uh, there's chopper coming in. Uh, dust line everywhere. You're trying to focus on like uh, trying to get off the battlefield alive more than you are the pain. You know, you're focused on breathing more than you are the pain because if you don't focus on breathing, you're not going to. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so you need to focus on those things, um, and that's what I did. You know, you're focusing on the rotor slowing down and collecting your thoughts, and 
and preparing yourself to go into the operating room, you know, and you're doing those things instead of focusing on the pain because uh, that, that, that can always be dealt with later, you know. Oof. Army doctors are true heroes. <clears throat> well, they are. Mm. They are. And, you know, I, uh, uh, some true heroes to me are our pilots, you know, mm-hmm. those helicopter pilots. You know, they, uh, they have uh, some incredible abilities. Um, you know, not only do they get us on and off the battlefield without having to walk across IED lands, mm-hmm. you know, they can haul us around. Uh, they can provide cover fire for us, which I did a ton. And uh, they also pick us up on our worst days, you know, and they come into the worst areas and uh, they deal with a smile and uh, they're, they're incredibly grateful to do it for you. You know, so what do they try to do? They just try to push the enemy back as far as they can to safely land a helicopter. Yeah, they're trying to, yeah, just trying to, just trying to get lay down as much cover fire as you can. So they can't try to shoot that bird down, you know, and trying to keep their heads down, make it uncomfortable for them to shoot. And uh, it's a big target. Fuck out there, yeah. It's, you know? I mean, it's sitting right there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, you're always worried about RPGs and other things, but, um, you know, they, they always try to get a gun team uh, rolling with them, you know, so they know whenever medevac choppers come in, the Taliban knows whenever they hear see a medevac chopper that there's probably an Apache right behind it. I saw, I read a statistic one time, and I can't remember, it was the lifespan of a chopper pilot during Vietnam, and you'd be surprised. Yeah, no, it was good. terrible. It was absolutely one of the worst jobs when it come for the death, death rate. It's terrible. Yeah, it kind of started out. Uh, I have a good friend that was a, a, a pilot during uh, Vietnam, and I got to take him on a helicopter ride here this spring. He wanted to go on a Huey again, and I got lined up for him to get on one. And we went for a ride again, and, and he was so happy that he got to go on a ride on a Huey again. And I was so thankful that my last ride wasn't a medevac <laughs> anymore. And uh, we had a good time out there. But he said when he was getting in, you know, he kept he ended up being a pilot because – he thought that if he kept taking all this training and for how long it took to become a pilot, hopefully maybe the war would be over <laughs> by the time he started flying. And uh, he said he ended up flying and he wrecked a bunch of birds over there. He crashed all kinds of stuff. And, and uh, he said when he first were trying to become a pilot, you know, he had to have all these credentials and meet all these standards, you know, and by the end of it all, if you could say helicopter, you were in. <laughs> <laughs> that was the standard. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. You know, they take anybody, 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 and everybody else would be willing to give it a shot to try to fly one of those things. You know, they give them a shot. You know, what uh, what were your thoughts on the way that we exited uh, Afghanistan? Oof. Yeah, the, I remember the immediately when it happened, the, the local paper called me and said, "Do you want to make a statement?" And I said, "No, yeah. I'm good." Uh, on, on the first time, you know, and a year later, I ended up making, you know, uh, a year after Afghanistan. I, but I didn't want to go down in history in the local paper uh, for saying some stuff that maybe I shouldn't have said. <laughs> I was pretty upset about the way that the whole thing went down, you know. Um, in in a in a really weird and twisted way, I envy the Taliban in some ways. They're free men that took back their own country. Um, uh, they ran the, one of the world's greatest superpowers out of their their own backyard. Yeah. Uh, and sheer resilience and and in uh, in ways there is ways to look at them and, and say, oh, "Wow, that's impressive" in a sense. But uh, the way that our country handled it was absolutely horrendous. Um, you know, every other war that we fought, you know, that we ever won, we still we kept bases there. I mean, we we invested twenty years and how much treasure, blood, and everything else to just decide one day to skip town with our tail between our legs that ain't who we are and i mean once you just stay there and fight just to save face in a sense and, and, and as of as a values and a morals thing you know i mean we hadn't we hadn't taken a casualty there in how many years uh we had all the infrastructure built we had all the equipment there we had everything was already done and ready to go why didn't we just help them continue to 
to build a gen- I mean, it's going to take generations mm-hmm. to create a better country. This is not going to happen by putting one man in charge and saying all the corruption's gone, all this is gone, everything is fixed. You know, uh, I think the guys and gals. I mean, we had, we had like a battalion in Afghanistan. We could have rotated people through there essentially as like a new duty station. You know, and just use it as a training ground and and kept peace in the Middle East in one of the worst places ever. And I just really think for how much of us we were truly sacrificing and the money that we were truly spending on being there uh, to pull out in the fashion that we did and to telegraph it to him and basically hand him the keys on the way out was a really bad choice. to Yeah. I just can't believe that we left everything for him. You know, it's uh, you know, we armed the entire Afghan national army with M 16s and machine guns and, everything else just like we did with the you know we were fighting the AKs that we gave them in the against the Mushadeen and and uh it's scary to think that one day that my kids may be fighting the weapons that I gave them in a sense you know there ain't nothing stupider than the United States fucking government I'm telling you right now there ain't nobody in the world's gonna go borrow fucking money that you don't have to give to someone that hates you or even someone that likes you I mean if I can't feed my family I damn sure ain't gonna go to the bank and borrow money to give to my neighbor who's kids are hungry i'm gonna feed my own family or i'm not gonna fucking give weapons and shit blow all that shit up that'd been a good place for a nuclear bomb put all of our shit in one big pile in the middle of that airport get on a plane fly off push a button and blow all that shit that were just ashes and glass well at the time it made sense you know we armed the taliban or mushadeen at the time you know we didn't have to worry about the russians going in there and we didn't have to get involved and you know they could fight them while we didn't think that you know, years later, 40 years later, whatever it is, that we would be, you know, fighting essentially our own weaponry that we gave them to fight the Russians off of, you know? And, you know, how many other <clears throat> places in the world have we armed that we don't even know right. about that are, you know, those weapons are now being used against us? Everywhere you know? in the world. I would, I have a hard time believing that Barack Obama isn't running things, and I have a hard time believing that Barack Obama did not leave all them weapons for the Taliban because he is a Muslim sympathizer. Yeah. Yeah. I have no idea on any of that, honestly. Uh, but you know, I, it's just, uh, it's a scary thought. You know, I think we need to really think, I don't think we think it far enough ahead. Right. I think we're just trying to solve problems right now with a quick, fast, easy solution. And yep, that makes sense. Go ahead and do it. What could go wrong? And, 20 years later, we're going, man, that was a really bad choice. No, nobody in their right mind would have left all that shit in Afghanistan. Nobody. Helicopters, all kinds of shit. Nobody would do that shit. Take it shit and start flying at home. Why? I mean. Well, they'll just buy more. Yeah, but, but we shouldn't leave it for someone else. I understand. Us buying I agree. I mean, I'm yeah. just saying that's their, that's yeah. their, that's their model. Yeah, they're just, you know, is, we'll just yeah, more, and let, let one of your other buddies in the military contract business get richer so he can give you a cutback. I don't trust politicians. It's easier to it's easier to leave too if you take nothing with you. <laughs> well, no shit. Yeah, it is. But I mean, you imagine that mindset with any business, you know? Oh, we just built a bridge here. We're going to leave all the dozers and everything. We'll just go down the road and start again. Nobody does that with anything. And I hate to tell you this, but military is a business. And <laughs> it's a big big business, biggest business in the world. And government spending is out of control, but th- that is a you could not do the things that our government has done in the last three years unless you intentionally were trying to kill our country from our border policies They're to big, everything. The military's biggest problem facing them right now is recruits. Yeah. yeah. Who wants to be part of that? Well, the whole thing is, is when you asked me to join, I, I was a kid. I watched a tower yeah. fall. Yep. You know, 
uh, I watched those guys going into Iraq. I watched the the. I'll never forget it. I don't even remember his name, but I, I remember this ranger from Minnesota that was the first um, Minnesotan killed in action in Iraq. You know, I remember seeing that come across the screen as a kid. You know. And then as I got older, YouTube came out, and I remember watching these guys fighting on the rooftops of Iraq, you know, and I was like, man, that's, a, you know, that's, 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 that's some men's work, right? I mean, that's not something anybody's willing to do, you know, I, I had an urge to go do it. I was like, I kind of want to be with those guys, you know, and, and, you know, you watch this go on, but now you're sitting here going, what would inspire a kid today to want to go fight the fights that we're fighting, yeah. you know, and, you know, that's the, something you really have to ask yourself is, is, uh, uh, when we make the decisions that we make, you know, do you think that we'll ever see another draft if, if things continue to decline the way that we're, we're seeing it? Cause I'm looking at it right now. Uh, it's 25% from its target. That was in 2023. That's bad. That's bad because you realize that's a whole year of, that's a whole year of people that are, are not going to be trained, you know, to teach a younger generation. Right. You know, we just keep falling further and further away from the point, you know? But yeah, I don't know. I don't think about a draft. I don't know. I, I don't think there'll ever be a draft. I really don't. I I just don't know how. I just don't know how. Who's you think these guys are so worried about their jobs out in Washington D.C.? If you can still, if you vote to to kick the draft off again, how are these guys ever going to get their jobs right. again? Huh? Keep their jobs by cheating. You know, they, they'd probably rather see the they'd probably rather see the the military fail than than do a know, draft and still. Do- then do a draft, yeah, because their whole constituency would would turn on them. Oh, yeah, that. think about these moms on social media now. If your <laughs> kid got drafted, could you imagine that? TikTok would be on fire with upset moms. Oh yeah, which I mean, uh, I mean it would be a it would be a it would be bad, and the, the military doesn't want that either. You know, one of the things that I think my generation hopefully will go down as is you know we fought a, the longest war in U.S. history it was an all volunteer army, right? Yeah. Yeah, but you know there was that call to action of nine eleven. You know, we yeah, had that. It was the Pearl Harbor. It was the you know. Yeah. Um. So, when and I might ask you this on the last one, but when does the pain set in? You know, you, you say you hurt all over, but like when does the acute pain of your arms and your legs and just everything kind of kick in? Not even when I really woke up in the ICU, not even really then, you know, it probably took, I mean, that's pretty heavily yeah. sedated, you know, um, I remember coming out of my first couple of surgeries. It was a very, there's a lot of that stuff in the ICU. Honestly, the day that I was blown up was a lot more clear than the following few days after in the ICU, you know, um, I remember this, it just felt like a lot of in and out of surgery, um, but it was the the most uncomfortable I always felt was I always felt like I needed to readjust myself when I was laying in the bed, you know, like you'd be sick of laying in one mm-hmm. spot. But it, it kind of turned into that. I kind of learned that I was just sore all over. So it wasn't necessarily the one spot that I was laying in. It was every spot <laughs> that I was laying in, you know. And it was just kind of a it was just a lot of pain all the time, kind of everywhere. Generally, my back was so sore. Um you know, my, my whole pelvis was sore, you know, um, my shoulders were sore. I mean, I had blown all over the place, shoulders broken, you know. Um, but I think when I had, when I really started thinking about pain, the worst pain that I had was once I started getting skin graft. Um, and they started those donor sites, man. They started putting my arms really back together. That's when, that's when I really had the pain. I can, I could still take myself back to those days of them peeling them wrappers off my belly and then watching them bleed, you know, from the donor sites. And 
having the heat lamps on me, cooking me to try to dry those out so they'd scab mm. up. And, and, you know, they're trying to find more places to take donor sites from because they couldn't take them from my back or my bottom because I had to lay on those. Right. That's all I had left to lay on, you know. And it's not like they could take a little off my leg or the inside <laughs> of my thigh because that's just been blowing up, you know. I mean, uh, they were running out of skin to take, and luckily there was enough donor sites that they that they could take from. But when I think of the pain that I had, that was that was probably the most painful that I had was the skin grafts, you know. And then the phantom pains in the hospital were next level too, you know. Uh, phantom pain is for those that don't know is when you're missing a limb, it still feels like your limb is there, and you're it's a it's an invisible pain, you know. You haven't been paying your foot; yeah. it's not even there anymore. And uh, the pain is, is excruciating. I always explain it as a be- a nail being stabbed into my foot. That's kind of how it feels and uh, super uncomfortable. And sometimes, uh, you know, like in my right leg, I'll just get a, especially when it's cold out, I'll just get like a, I'll feel like my heel is super dull and achy, mm-hmm. you know, like a dull, achy pain in my heel. Like I bruised it or something like that. And I've been walking on it all day, you know? That's so crazy. Like you still have phantom pains? Oh, yeah. All the time. Yeah. All the time I'll get them. Will know? they ever and, go and away? I mean, they get better over time. I mean, you know, when I first couple of years, I'd get them all the time, you know, and like, you know, you get less and less of these things. And sometimes I'll just get zingers all the time. I mean, I'll probably have 30 or 40 zingers a day where I'll just be like a quick one shot. You'd be like, oh, right. yeah, that was a good one, you know. And uh, most time, you know, heck, I've had them when I'm giving speeches. And people don't even know it, you know, sometimes, you know, just they just come and go so quick. It's just kind of a quick you might make you stop breathing for a quick second or something like that it's just a good shot of pain but um for the most part you know that you get them under control and and you start to learn how to live with them and you the hot and cold you know up here when it gets super super cold and you're in your you know 70 degree house and you go out and get in your 30 degree truck and then you you know you go uh, pump some gas so you get out of your truck and you're out in the cold for a minute and then you get back in the warm the constant hot and cold kind of messes with those nerves a lot because you carry a lot of fluid in your legs you know you know just because you don't work them as much as you used to so you have some extra fluid sitting in those legs and the constant heating and cooling expands and contracts on those nerves and kind of fires them up that's interesting i never would have thought the phantom pain would be like that i've always heard of it i just never i didn't think it was a long-term deal i figured it was something you know for two or three days and eventually it would go away that's a well, it's just kind of a double son of a bitch, you know, because he ain't even got your foot. It hurts. It hurts. <laughs> you know? A double son of a bitch. <laughs> you know? Don't even have it and it still hurts. Yeah, that. You know? So uh, you'll feel. Like your first girlfriend, you know? <laughs> Don't even have her and she still hurts. So you'll feel it like in yeah. your heel, where your heel should be. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. It, uh, what the hell? Would you have ever thought it would last that long, Andy? Not this many years. I mean, I've heard, I, I like Jeff said, I, I knew people have had it, but I didn't know years later it was still, like, fucking toes hurting. Yeah, yeah. And it's weird, like, if, you know, we were going out to the, we're walking out, we're hunting pheasants, you know, and you're like, man, I should have wore some different boots today, you know, <laughs> my socks are getting damp, you know. I can, I will, I, when you tell me that, in my mind, I can, I can feel my, my socks getting damp. Mm-hmm. I look at my tracks, I'm like, oh, and just in my mind, it's like, I can feel my socks getting wet. Or if me and you were sitting on the dock, you had your feet in the water and you're just kind of moving around in the water, I could feel the same sensation in my mind. You know, I can I can still take myself back. And it's really kind of trippy how it, you know, you can sit there and kind of pretend like as if you're moving your legs that aren't there anymore and still get that almost the same sensation if somebody else is there, you know, with the noise and everything else, you mm-hmm. know? It's wild. Your mind is incredibly powerful. That's crazy. Because you, know? you know you get that asshole friend like, oh, Jack, at least his fucking fit toes ain't cold today. Right. No, yeah, they are. Well, that's why I, 
That's why I can sit in the north and deer hunt all day. My feet don't get cold. I'm an all-day sitter. <laughs> Have you ever thought about running for some sort of office? Well, how how can I do that, Andy? I don't have any feet. Oh, fuck. That was office. wrong. That was a, have you ever thought? Yeah, you, now, now you're going to say you put your foot in your mouth. And we'll get along this long line of fun. You know you're going to catch a lot of shit on this uh, one. Have you ever thought about seeking public office? How about that? <laughs> I did. I uh, I got involved with politics pretty heavy for a long time and, and uh, worked on some presidential campaigns, even ran a local Senate campaign and uh, been involved with a local, you know, basic political operating unit, you know, our local county you know, where, you know, you elect uh, for delegates and all that. I've been involved in pretty much every single level of, of politics in, in that sense. Um, I love the, I love the, I love being in Washington. I like the thing, I like the thought of, of um, you know, world policies being made behind every door in a sense, you know. Um, I like to think that out there people are genuinely trying to do the right things most of the time. And, uh, the one problem that I had, though, in politics is it seems like everybody that is involved in politics that's even on a campaign uh, still is in it for some reasons for themselves. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, and I went from a world where um, everybody was willing to give up their lives for the men to the left and the right. And, and people weren't willing to give up their seat, you know, even for I mean, not not like their actual seat that they're in. But I'm, I mean, that was, that was a bad analogy. People aren't willing to give up, you know, the smallest sacrifice and uh, to help out, you know, for the team, you know, unless they've seen some benefit in it for themselves. You know, right. that was the hardest part in politics, you know, um, and that's why it just didn't seem like a very genuine arena most of the time. I did meet a lot of genuine people and I didn't make a lot of really good friends, but um, I just really didn't see politics as being a, something that I wanted to be involved in in my life. And if I did get involved in politics, you know, at the time that I was doing it, you know, I was in my mid 20s, you know, uh, late 20s, uh, you know, I didn't want to serve forever. So what are I going to do? Right. You know, you know, I get in the house and run for two years and, you know, then what, yeah. you know, uh, maybe someday later on in life, you know, when my kids are gone and, you know, I don't know, there's probably, I'd rather go shoot ducks. <laughs> I don't blame you. Like, listen, it's a scuzzy business, but. I don't know. I just think guys like you that have, you know, skin in the game. You've you've yeah. seen what you've seen. You have experience, and you can make an educated decision on you know a lot of things. And I think that the country should be ran by people like you. But they make it so guys like me don't want to run, though. You know, I mean, it's you know, if the problem is nowadays in politics too is you know I think about my kids. You know, right. I mean, they already have a dad that. You know, can't really go play the best catch with them in the backyard. That can't shoot the hoops like well, you know. Yeah. You know, do it. Do they really want to hear people bashing me for other things too? You know, I works. I you know, I try to be the best example for my kids. And I try to live the best life that I can, and I try to do the right thing all the time. You know, but people spin things and people to say things that you know and stretch the truth on things. And I just don't want my kids to have to hear bad things about me that aren't right. true. You know? I don't think that's really bad with politicians. Cause there ain't one of them. Some bitches don't want to run again. I mean, they always yeah. want to be reelected. So it must not be as hard as we think it is, but I think it's cause they live in an inner select group. I don't think guys like you become a politician and you stay in the same house in the same neighborhood and your kids are in the same school. You take your ass and you move to the influent part of Washington D.C. and become one of them. Yeah. I wouldn't want my kids to be a part of because then you know then they're taking shots at your kids and then it's like oh yeah uh, you know and like what happens <clears throat> if you know like my kids are in school and some some other kids parents don't like a vote that I right. made is some other kid gonna be hacking on my kid because I made a right. vote you know what I mean I don't want none yeah. of that 
I don't blame. I know it's like I said, it's a, it is not a business that I want to be in either. But uh, I think y'all are both compartmentalizing it that it's that you're 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 going to be the same life you're living now. Mm. And I don't think when you're a politician, it's that way. I don't think that Ted Cruz or Dan Crenshaw or Rashida Tlaib or whatever. I don't think their kids are living and going to the same schools they were before. I think they're living in a private school, private area, and they're surrounded by people just like themselves. I don't think it's like it was back in the old days where you're going to Washington, D.C., and your kids are still having their life back home. And right. it might be that way for a little bit, but it doesn't stay that way. I think one of the things I hated most about politics, too, is begging for money. You know, yeah. feeling like you need, you, know, oh. you have to have money to run a campaign. You just can't not, you know, you just can't right. not ask for money, you know, and. And that was one thing that I would hate to. I, I'm not like Trump. I can't go self-fund my own campaign and not be in debt to anybody. If I ran for office, I'd have to go out solicit for donations, you know, and yeah. I'd have to ask people for money. And I'd have to ask some people for a lot of money, probably, you know, and that's just not something that, I, you know, I, that's just not really what I wanted to do in my life. You know, I just don't really feel I feel like I can make a bigger impact in this world outside of politics than I can inside, you know, the arena. Can you imagine him asking for that fucking, like Chris Christie, there's some fucker out there right now that has wrote Chris Christie a check for 100000 to a $1 million. He has no chance in hell of winning at all. What a waste of freaking money. I mean, absolutely yeah, I, a big waste of money. And I would feel bad if I got all that money from the people that I lost. Mm-hmm. Well, then you owe them. Yeah. I, yeah, well, you don't yeah, owe them nothing. You got to get well. You got to give them a solid somewhere. Well, their solid was they was going to give you money and you was going to do them a favor when they was in office. Is how they was figuring it. But you you know that Chris Christie is still on the stage the other day, so he's collected probably a million to ten million dollars. Mm-hmm. I think that these guys do this to stay relevant so they yes. can get their TV spot. Yes, there's yeah. no doubt about that, and it's on somebody else's money. But I'm like you, I would hate to go and say, hey, donate a hundred dollars to me or five hundred or whatever knowing you don't have a chance in hell to win. Because right now in the pr- – These guys these guys can ask for 5200 bucks. Yeah, and, and knowing damn well they don't have a chance in hell. Chris Christie has no chance of winning the presidential nomination. Zero. We know that. He knows that. His people know it. But yet they're still fucking out there right now trying to – somebody right now is getting a call from his office trying to get him to donate some money to him. And it ain't going to happen. I just, I just hope that uh... – I just hope that we can have, uh, you know, the the next, you know, Ronald Reagan or the next, you know, uh, conservative version of Obama in a sense, uh, a young leader that wants to go make a change, that has the right ideas, that can inspire people. Because really, at the end of the day, leadership, you know, and politicians' biggest problem is is that they don't understand that leadership is action. It's not words. Everybody everybody knows that you can say whatever you want. You know, you, you could tell me you're going to be a billionaire in two years and it's not going to mean nothing unless you do something about it, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that that's what we need is somebody that's actually going to come in here. And I think that's why people really like Trump, you know, from the get go is that he said, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to do it. And if you like me, this is what's going to happen. And that's really what he did. You know, I think that a lot of things that Trump did was really good. Um, I just don't maybe agree with some of the way that, you know, some of the things that he said and stuff like that. And, you know, I mean, he has to act more presidential in my eyes, I guess. Yeah. What What would have happened if they would have ran out of donor spots on you? Like, what do they do with the wounds at that point? If they couldn't do more skin Start grafts? amputating, I guess. Start amputating, I guess. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, my right arm was kind of somewhat, I mean, if you don't know you can see it or not, yeah. my right arm was kind of somewhat experimental, you know, this is all from my belly down here, and uh, 
you know, right here's where my arm, this little one piece of skin that was holding my arm on, you know, this little piece right here that was all holding my arm on. And uh, when I first seen it, and it would have been as simple as just cutting that spot with the scissors and pulling the skin over and Ooh. calling it an arm, you know? Jesus. So this guy, this guy came down from the Pennsylvania Hand Institute um, to work on guys like me. And, and uh, he pounded a rod all the way down my arm, the center of my arm, drilled a hole all the way through the middle of my arm and pounded a rod down it and uh, started attach reattaching everything to it. And uh, so I just grabbed skin and pieces of whatever he needed from wherever he could get it. And uh, he tried to save my arm. And his idea was, was uh, he repaired people that had already been through the emergency room. But um, he was trying to see what happened when people came to the emergency room. If there's something that they could do there to make things better. So that way when he got them, he could do make them even better yet, you know. And uh, they come down there and they, they take these internships or whatever they residencies, temp, you know, whatever you want to call them down there. And uh, they can work on guys like me and try to save my arm for multiple reasons. You know, there's not an insurance that's going to be billed. There's no malpractice, um, you know. And like he said, if you don't like it when I'm done, I'll cut it off later. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do they, like all the muscles and stuff in there, like how do they reattach all that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's creepy, man. You know, like my tendons, you know, I can move my fingers by pulling on my arm <laughs> and, and uh there's not a lot left of it, you know, but what is left of it, I'm thankful for. You know, I never realized how much my red arm meant to me. You know, it helps me drive. Mm -hmm. It makes driving so much easier. Uh, the one thing that I'm the most grateful for, uh, I could pick my kids yeah. up, you know, when I was, you know, when they were babies and stuff, you know, I could do that still, you know, and I could hold a shotgun a lot easier. So with those three things in life, you know, I'm pretty grateful that I got my red arm, you know, and just transferring and jumping around and everything else having just you know even though my hand doesn't really work uh, just having it in my arm there is is uh it it means it's it's a lot yeah. you know so your left hand is your left hand your 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 trigger finger now it is yeah yeah i had to relearn how to shoot left-handed pretty much you know and uh i uh you know i i don't know i feel like i'm pretty good with a shotgun now it took me some time and uh, I spent some time with a guy, Dan Carlisle. He's from down your neck of the woods. You might have heard of him, go to the Olympic shooter. Uh, he comes up here every summer, and, and uh, I go out with Mark Fitzsimmons, and we go out and we shoot with him, and he helps me out with a ton of stuff, just trying to help me really get dialed in with that left eye and being right-eye dominant and right-handed, you know, trying to shoot left everything left-handed, you know. So whenever I'm in the duck blind and I whiff, I go, hey, guys, I'm shooting offhand, <laughs> off-eye over here. Why don't you guys try it? I always got an excuse out there if I miss, you know. How much, uh, how much weight have you lost? Cause you know, oh, like, man, yeah, you look like a different uh, person from some of the pictures I've seen. And even from the last time we talked to you. Yeah. You know, and, uh, I always joke. I want everybody to know I lost my legs in the war, not the war on diabetes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, no, I decided this, this, uh, this spring I need to get myself in shape. And, and, uh, I really learned, I always joke with everybody. How'd you lose all that weight? I started running again. <laughs> no, I just started running like Forrest Gump, yeah. you know. No, I uh, just I just kind of learned that it, whatever you put in your mouth really matters, you know. And uh, I was I was eating way too much, uh, you know, than I should have been. And you know, I just had to get that stuff dialed back in, you know. If I if I want to be the best version of myself and live the words that I say, you know, um, you know, I need to start taking better care of myself. And when I stepped on that ID, I didn't really realize how much it took out of me. Um, it took me a long time to get stuff in my life figured out, you yeah. know, from the mental side of it to physically just trying to be able to move again and get all my limbs working again and everything else that, 
it just took me a long time to kind of rebuild back to creating the best version of myself that I am today, you know, that, and I'm going to try to be a better version of myself tomorrow. And that's what I do every single day. And, and, uh, if I'm not putting the best things in my body, then I'm not gonna be able to be the best self. And so I just kind of got my nutrition dialed in and, and, um, you don't want to be an example for my kids, you know, it's, you don't, you want to be a, a, a great bow hunter, then, you know, be the, be fit. So you can drag a deer out by yourself, be able to go into the woods and climb up a tree and not, when you get in the tree, you don't feel like you're going to pass out because you're winded, right. you know? And, you know, if you, if, if you're, if, uh, the world does turn to a mean place, you better be in shape because, you know, you're gonna, you know, you need to protect the world. You need to protect your country. You need to protect your family. You need to be able to do those things. And if I say those things to my kids, I should be doing the same thing. You yeah, know? I saw a video. You were bench pressing. Oh yeah, I like to. I like to lift. Uh, you know, it's a good release. It's good for me to stay in shape. And and uh, yeah, sometimes you want to lift heavy stuff, and sometimes uh, you you don't. You know, and and uh, I'm still lucky. I remember calling my surgeon. And I'm like, if I put 315 pounds on this thing, is this <laughs> Is this rock going to bend in my arm? He's like, oh, no, you can't break that thing. So, uh, yeah, no, I like to work out. It's good for me, um, you know, getting stronger, getting healthier, um, you know, just trying to become the best version of myself. 315, that's what you're putting on there. Well, I can hit that three or four times, but any more than that, it starts getting hard on the shoulder. That's a shitload of weight. Yeah, it's a lot. It's heavy. Squat's not quite there. You did, that, you did comment somebody. Somebody asked you what your how much you were squatting these days, and you had a pretty you had a yeah. pretty quick comment. So <laughs> yeah, it starts down squat right, you know. <laughs> but uh, Wednesday's leg day. You're not going to catch me at the gym on Wednesday. <laughs> so how did you catch this catfish that you were talking about? What six sixty five oh, pounds? Catfishing is a extreme passion of mine. Uh, me and a buddy hunting pheasants out in South Dakota. I ran into this guy. Uh, he was a retired fist group guy. And uh, we, he said, can I get a ride with you out to the ranch? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And I was riding to the ranch. And he tells me he lives down by Fort Campbell still. But he always goes to northern Alabama to catch these monster catfish. And I'm thinking, this hillbilly son of a gun, you know? And he's telling me all about it. And, and, and uh, he said, you should come down and try catfishing sometime. Well, I'll go, I'll go on adventure anytime, you know? And. And uh, so we finished up hunting out in South Dakota and I got home and he calls me. He's like, when are you coming down? I don't think I was even home for 24 hours, you know? And uh, so I jumped in the truck and headed down there. And I remember hanging out of that fishing pool that first time I was hooked into a catfish. And I was like, oh, I get mm. this. This is cool. Uh, they just fight. Uh, they're big. They're huge. And uh, I always, every time I throw them lines out, I just think, yep, this is the time I'm going to, I'm going to put, I'm going to be the, the guy on the state record plaque. You know, every time I throw a line out, I really think it. And uh, I've had him pull me out of my wheelchair before uh, trying to hang on to him, uh, pull me around to the live well, trying to hang on to the Jeez. pole. Um, you know, you can hear the trolling motor just up there cranking, trying to keep you on spot lock. This, this fish is dragging the boat around, uh, you know, and sometimes you catch a monster and he just flows her up to the top and, says put me in the net take a picture with me and send me back down you know and uh we never keep them we never really eat them uh everybody asks if i do and i say no there's a grocery store between the landing and the, <laughs> in the house i'm stopping to get steak <laughs> but no they're just a ride to catch you I mean you go out there sometimes you're in 30 feet of water sometimes you're in 90 feet of water and you know you do a lot of dragging a little bit of suspending and just depending on conditions and and i think that's really what i truly love about anything in the outdoors you know it doesn't really matter what i'm doing if i'm shooting ducks somewhere up in North Dakota or if I'm catching fish in Alabama or whatever it may be. I think the one thing that I really enjoy about the outdoors is, is all the adversity that we face, you know, whether it's 
the wind, the conditions, the whatever it may be, but it's always just overcoming that adversity. You know, the fish aren't biting this way. Let's change up the way we're hooking our bait. You know, let's do this. It's I always like the the constantly trying to trying to become a better at whatever you're doing and fighting the adversity and trying to put it all in into correlation into whatever it is you're trying to do. You know, and uh, it keeps you distracted from the things in life that you want to be distracted from. If you if you fall in love with the outdoors, you know, you're always checking wind speeds. You're always checking this and with this, with this blind work on Thursday night when I can get out one night hunting this week or whatever it may be, you know. And, uh, you know, after you've been through a lot of, lot of awful things, you know, um, the outdoors can, can give you a place to, to go and hide, you know, for, hey, from all those bad things. Yeah, 65-pound catfish, that's a, that's a, that's a hoss. It's a, it's a big fish. It's a, he, he came in, he came in pretty nice, honestly. And uh, we actually thought we were hung up in a tree at first and we got hooked into him. They're trying to move the boat over to try to unhook, get the hook out of the tree, and I was like, and, and Roger's like, I don't, I don't think that's that's a tree. I think that's a fish. I said, well, give me that pole. <laughs> so I got hold of it and I started reeling on it. I said, this is a good fish, and uh, we we're he's dragging us around then, and we ended up getting him pulled in the boat. And uh, sometimes the hardest part about catfishing is honestly getting the dang thing in the boat. You know, it's you got a sixty pound, sixty five pound uh, non willing participant. Right. You got, yourself, uh, you got yourself in troubles here sometimes they get out of hand, you know, and then you get them in the boat and you're trying to hold them for a picture and they're slapping you in the face. You got slime all over you. It's just a riot out there. Have you talked to any of the people that uh, were there the day that, that saved your life? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, me and Doc have seen each other numerous times. Uh, whenever I go through St. Louis, I see my old platoon leader. Um, yeah, I mean... Yeah, I've seen a lot of the guys. Spent a lot of time with a lot of the guys that were with me that day when I was wounded. Yeah, absolutely. Do you do you like that? Do you kind of like that reunion, or is it one of those things that you're just like you kind of hope to move past? No, I mean it's always great. I mean uh, Hurley, the guy that I was wounded with that day, yeah, he just moved up here to Minnesota just over a year ago, you know, and and uh, he's up here now, and so I see him, you know, all the time, and and uh, you know, it's uh, no, I love seeing my guys. Yeah, I love spending time with those guys, you know. And uh, I think it's good, too, for those guys to see that I'm living a good life right. and I'm still out here doing stuff. And, you know, it was worth it was worth saving my life that day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such an inspiration. I mean, you know, you really are just, you know, you well, just... I just I just think about it, too. Like, if you're laying around, you know, doing nothing with your life, you know, like those guys that saved my life that day, it'd be a huge slap in the face of them, you know, for if, if I just laid around and waited to die the rest of my life after they pulled me off the battlefield, you know, they should have just let me die out there otherwise, right. you know? And one of the things I remember, you know, from the last time we talked to you is, you know, you just never took any, you know, they kept telling you, oh, this depression is going to come, uh, the depression is going to come. And it's like, still waiting. Still waiting for it. <laughs> still waiting. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, life is what you make it. It really is, you know, and I tell my kids all the time, you know, if, if uh, everything in your life is your fault. Mm -hmm. Whether good things happen to you or bad things happen to you, everything in your life is your fault. You know, if you're out there doing the best you can every single day and you're doing the right things, good things are going to happen, you know. And if you can approach things with the right attitude, you can overcome anything. You know, with a bad attitude, you can't overcome anything. And after you've been through things that I've been through, there's not too many things in life that you can really throw at me that I'm not really going to know believe that I can't get through a situation or that I don't know if I can do this or I'm ever going to doubt myself because of all the things that I've been through. I mean, I've walked off a chopper in the middle of the night, <clears throat> you know, willing to take on some of the baddest dudes in the world, you know, uh, 
you know, what, what can I do in this world now? You know, I've had all four of my limbs ripped off and woke up in a hospital bed with literally nothing in my life. You know, I had nothing at that point with me. You know, I didn't, I didn't have anything, you know, and here I am sitting here today, you know, happy as ever. So <clears throat> sometimes we find ourselves down. It's as simple as uh, doing nothing, but just looking up and heading that direction. Yeah. You know, did you, how many other close calls did you have while you were over there where it was like, I mean, that, that could have uh, yeah. gone, you know, a totally different way. Yeah, I say all the time, you know, the day that I was wounded probably wasn't even the day I was closest to dying, you know, uh, when we were gunfighting over all the time, you know, you hear them, you know, if you hear them crack, that's good news, you hear them hiss, that was close, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, they're shooting at us all the time, you know, you'd be out in the middle of a field and you just start eating rounds, you know, you'd be, you know, you'd be, you get in these corridors, you can't tell which way the gunfire's coming from, it's that going so bad, you know, it's just, you don't know if it's your guy shooting or if it's them shooting. You know, you don't know if it's that guy's flanking. You know, so it's there's stuff flying all over all the time. I remember um, one day my buddy Dawkins was wounded, and we had guys trying to get down there with trucks to drive him out of there to go get him down into a helicopter. And and uh, as it was coming down the ditch, I was up on the corner of it, and uh, the mine roller in the front of it rolls rolling down this wadi, and it hit an IED. And the tire off the mine roller came flying about, lopped my head off. You know. Uh, you know, you just never know over there. I mean, not only was it people shooting at you, but, you know, you're fighting around these graveyards with rocks everywhere. There's a lot of ricocheting going on, too, you know. Mm. And so you just never knew what it was, where it was coming from. You know, you get in these gunfights and, you know, you'd be trying to hear an RPG go off and then you'd hear it land and you can kind of keep track of that. You know, it'd be two in the air and then it'd be one in the air and then you'd all right, we can shoot now. And, you know, you'd be trying to keep track of stuff and then they start volleying too many RPGs at you and you can't keep track of how many are in the air and you just kind of got to gamble sometimes and get up and get shooting, you know, and gain fire superiority. Yeah. What, uh, so you said if you hear them crack, you're okay, but if you hear them hiss, it was close. That was close. Yeah, that was close. Yeah, you know, it's just, you can tell the difference, you know, if you get shot at enough, you know, how close it was to you and if it was actually meant for you or <laughs> somebody else, you know, and, uh, you know, and you kind of got to, you, usually if there's one, there's a lot more right. coming. So how long does it take to kind of adjust to now everywhere you go, the potential for a fight is, you know, great. I mean, everywhere you go is a threat. You know what I mean? Like you get over there, you know, you're prepared on paper as far as, as much as the government can get you prepared for going over there. But like when the bullets start really, really flying and getting close, how how long does it take you to adjust? Uh, adjust to uh, just the what's going yeah, on. Just, like just knowing, knowing that like everywhere is a problem. Yeah, I mean, uh, you just you just assume everything's trying to kill you over there from every direction. You know, uh, you're never you're never letting your guard down. There's always somebody watching some direction. Uh, you're trying to get intel all the time from. From eyes above that, you know, trying to tell you what's going on. There's guys trying to make sure there's there's what there's other you know what assets are available to us. If there's uh, you know jets above us, if there's helicopters in the area, like stuff like that. But once the bullets start flying, you know, uh, you just you know we've done so many reaction to contacts and training that you know your training just kind of kicks in. You know, you con you got everybody contact whatever direction is coming from twelve o'clock, nine o'clock, you know, whatever direction the contacts coming from and uh, most people would get down and run, but we turn in and we head to the fire and we start laying into the, laying into the trigger and, uh, getting that fire superiority. That's always the main thing is when that gunfight kicks off, you better be top dog because you don't want to be the one pinned down, having them maneuver on you. You want to have them pinned down maneuvering on them. Right. Do, do you bring that paranoia back home with you at all? 
or is that something that you don't um no not really like you know there's some things that i noticed like like when i built my shop here at my house i put a door on each end because i'd never want to be trapped in a building you know i I, looking back now i'm like why'd i put a door there that was dumb but you know in my mind there you know i I was like i don't want to i need to have two doors in this building because i don't want to be trapped in the shop you know uh ever you know certain things like that you know you start putting you don't want to ever find yourself in certain situations but uh, you know, there's this race I go to every year in St. Louis, and uh, there's a huge explosion before the race all the time, like pyrotechnics, you know. And uh, I remember this last year, it went off, and I about hit the floor. And uh, somebody's like, oh, my God, you have, you know, it is scary, you know. And it's like, it's not like it took me back mm-hmm. to Afghanistan. It wasn't like that. It was more like I've heard it so much that I know when shit right. goes off, you just need to get down or it's going to hit you in the head, bro, <laughs> you know. <laughs> It's just, uh, it's not like I'm scared. Right. It's just, uh, it's happened it's so often. That, you know, or you hear that, you know, some people hear a crack behind them and they look yeah. and I, yeah. and I go for the ground. It's like, don't look <laughs> at the bullet. It's coming right at you. You know what I mean? Get down, you know? And, uh, that was the, that was the thing over there in, in Afghanistan was, you know, is, is the worst feeling was, was when he heard that first crack, because usually, they're not going to shoot at you unless they think they got you in the best position for themselves. Oh. You know, it's an ambush, you know, so they're not going to shoot at you if they think you're in a better position than them. So typically whenever you get shot at, you try to push through the gunfire and you try to get out of that position and try to maneuver on them immediately because there's a reason that they're shooting in you where you're at, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Like you said, they're never, <clears throat> you're never going to go into a fight where you're have a superior position on them. Well, think about it, you know, I mean, if, you're, if you see a bunch of ducks land in one spot in the field, that's where you're going to go set up in that field because, right. you know, that's, that's, that's where, you know, they, that's where you're going to go ambushing is where, where it's best for right. you. You know, you're not going to set up in a bad spot where you got no cover and you're, you know, you, you're profiled so bad. It's like sitting out in the middle of a field trying to deer hunt thinking you're sitting in a, in a right. blind, you know, it just doesn't. You know, it's not the best position for, for the deer hunter, you know, so. So everything's working against you over there. Everything all the time. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, yeah. And then usually, you know, if, if you're not getting gunfire from a certain direction, they probably want you to go that way because there's probably an ID on the other end of that, you know. And basically in Afghanistan, you always took the, the stupidest way possible. You know, if there's a path right in front of you, that's, that's the cleanest path in the world. You're going to climb up on that wall and you're going to walk down the damn wall. You know what I mean? It's, uh, you just, anything that didn't make sense, that's the way that you went. You just try to think of whatever made sense, do the opposite and head that way. You know, if they're like, nobody would ever walk across this, this grapevine field here. It's, you have to hop over 50 walls. Well, guess what we're doing? We're hopping over 50 walls, you know? Was there any part of Afghanistan that was pretty? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, there's tons of Afghanistan. It was beautiful. The, the sunsets in Afghanistan with the mountains in the back was, was the best, you know. Um, it was super cool being down on the Argonaut River um, and looking across the river and seeing the Red Desert. You know, it's just pure sand on the other side of the river, and we're staying on this fertile soil. Um, you know, when the when the poppies would, or the uh, opium would, you know, the poppy would, would bloom, you know, there'd be tons of the purple and pink flowers, you know, and stuff, and it was really pretty. The grapevines would be very lush, you know, in the summertime, and... And uh, there's a lot of greenery. It was just obviously the architecture was pretty yeah. awful. It was a bunch of mud huts, but um, you know, for the most part, it was a you know there's just fields and acres and acres. Where I was at, it was just acres and acres and acres of marijuana and opium. That's all. Really, 
And is yeah. everybody over there taking partaking in the marijuana and the opium? No, nobody. Nobody. Is. Nobody is. That's against a religion, you know. Uh, so basically, they they just export it through probably a port in Pakistan, or you know, take it by car to Europe. And after I was wounded, I know there were some of my guys that were running missions with like uh, CIA, DEA, you know, going and raiding these uh, labs, you know, that were made, that were basically, you know, tearing down the opium into raw tar, you know. So what do they do? How do they how they figure out how to make opium? They've been doing it in the Chinese in the 1500s. But what do you have to do to it? I have no idea. You peel that. Uh, I just uh, they have to maybe boil it or do something to it or somehow extract that that you know that opium out of it. And it basically turns it, it drips is what I believe. They score the poppy and then it drips and they collect the the tar. You know, it's raw and then black tar heroin. They cook it down. You know? That's yeah. what opium is. Yes, yeah, black heroin? tar heroin. Yep. So they make heroin is out of opium. But they take the bud, and they—I I don't know if, if they call it a bud even, but it's a flower, and they take it, and I think it's like hard, like a like a like one of the like a nut, almost. yeah. And then they they cut it, and they—I don't know if they boil it or they cook it or whatever they do. Drips, yeah. They, and they drip, yeah. Flex it. It's yeah. kind of like maple syrup, except well, they get it out of the yeah. Is, but what go. it is basically. Well, I've seen the opium dens on like TV and stuff. So I didn't know like what yeah. they did. They've done it for years, but it's they—they <clears throat> the opium has been around for the Chinese 13th, 14th century. I mean, it's it's an old drug that they've done, and I'm sure somebody had a fucking poppy seed out there, and some sucker bear saw it and said, "Oh, we'll take that and see what it is." And we got high, and but I mean, right? It's just fields and fields and fields of that. And it just I mean, grows wild. Was- no, they plant. Uh, it. They plant it. No, they cultivate no, no, it. No, they, 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 yeah, they cultivate. They have like. All their fields are gridded off, you know, in small, like, 10 by 10 grids. And they'll flood that thing every single day. They'll be out there with the pump running, and they'll flood one grid, and they'll stick a, a clump of mud in that little grid, and then they'll fill the next one. And they'll just keep doing that all day long, you know, until all their fields are flooded. And then we have to go walk across flood fields. <laughs> CIA has to <clears throat> just, CIA's got to make a profit. That's true, too. But, you know, I mean, I mean, there was just, I mean, there, I mean, there was so much. I mean, I don't even know where they could all even go. You know, I mean, it's just, it goes on. I, I don't even know. It's just, there's so much marijuana, so much opium. I mean, it was just, it was just unlimited there. I mean, as far as you could see, you know, and that's what they grew is, I guess, apparently this must be the ultimate cash crop. Yeah. Well, otherwise we wouldn't give a shit about it. It's like oil. What do they do? They just broadcast yeah, it. And that was, that was one of the things that we were doing there too, is we were trying to, this is the dumbest stuff they had us doing was like. Trying to get trying to talk them into growing corn. <laughs> yeah, give up, you know? give up your millions of dollars and let's grow something that costs seven dollars a bushel. Yeah, they're like, you know, this is something that you know uh, is, you can actually put in the market, and you can, you know, it'd be a way to build an economy. And they're going, you're telling me you'll be giving me four bucks a bushel <laughs> for this, yeah. or you'll give me four million for this yeah. brick? You know, it's like uh, I'm gonna stick with what I got going here. The CIA know? ain't gonna land covert operations in there and tick up your corn and flat to fucking market like they do the heroin. Yeah, it's not a conspiracy it's, theory. Been the CIA's been in the heroin business for well, fuck, they were doing it in Vietnam. I mean, it's been that's an old business. You don't think they're uh, they're not growing uh, heroin in Afghanistan, like he said, where they're not using it if they weren't making some money shipping it somewhere else? Uh, that's how the Taliban's been funded yep. for years. You know, that's how they that's how basically how they funded themselves is you know taxing those people one hundred percent of their yep. crop. To fund Taliban and in return they protect them, you know. Just like cocaine use in uh, Colombia, most of the Colombians are not using cocaine; they're shipping the shit to the United States or to Europe. 
Same deal. Right. Drugs are a crazy thing. Like, it's just crazy to me how you take this thing that's growing and then all of a sudden you you do different things with, with marijuana and you just kind of dry it out and light it and, you know, you're done there. <laughs> dry it out and light it. <laughs> you know, dry it out and light it. But, like, you know, you got opium and you got, I don't know what you got to do to it, but apparently it sounds pretty complicated. Yeah, it's not an easy process. It's not something you're just right. going to just whip out real quick. Right, yeah. it's just crazy that humans have found out, you know, Co- uh, uh, coffee beans make sense, you know. They're pretty, and you put them in your mouth, and then all of a sudden you get energy. That makes sense. But, but like, methamphetamines, mm-hmm. fuckers, got to be a chemist right. to make methamphetamines. You got to be a smart guy. Yeah. So it, uh, it's just crazy that, that there's people that are like, okay, if we do this and do this, and it doesn't burn us alive, then maybe we can like smoke it or something. You have to realize though, back back in the day though, think about how much time these people had to do right? nothing. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not like they could just, they were bored at night scrolling on TikTok, you know? I mean, they're probably out there tasting plants and stuff in the evening, you know? And try, well, that plant smoked up, you know, maybe try this one, and then found out that wasn't very good. And that's how they ended up with popcorn, you know? Yeah. I don't know. We, we love getting fucked up as human beings, I guess. Yes, sir. Oh, it's, uh, I think I think it's uh, I think people like to really escape reality. I think that's yeah. that's what it is. They don't like the reality around them, and uh, it's their way of escaping it. And uh, you know, I, I, for as long as you know, people have been around. I mean, look at what people have done during the prohibition just to get just to get you know messed up. I mean, people died just to get drunk. <laughs> Bathtub know? gin. Well, I think uh, elephants will like keep. Uh, I think elephants will keep fruit in their mouth until it ferments. So that they get oh. So you know, all animals like escaping reality, I guess. So what's what's next for you? Oh man, I'm working on another book. Hope to have that done here by the end of the year. Um, uh, you know, I've been podcasting a little bit on my own. I got a podcast out of the Mankato here, you know, and uh, we're just talking to people about the service that they do in our community and trying to highlight them and just sharing their stories. So I've been enjoying doing that. Um, you know, uh. Just trying to stay adventurous, you know. I want to get on some more hunts. I want to go in some different places and hunt some different stuff. My my true passion in life is is shooting things with wings, you know. I just, you know, I want to do something more of that um, in some different places with some different people. And and uh, yeah, I don't know what's gonna come. I like to do some. I like to do some offshore fishing. I haven't done a bunch of that, but I'd like to try try some of that. Um, yeah, I just I just love being in the outdoors, adventures. You know, I, I thought about maybe trying to go and get scuba certified this winter. Um, trying to do something like that. I was just trying to be like be working at something, you know, all the time, you know, some sort, you yeah. know. And uh, obviously, I got all my my business stuff going on. I'm doing a ton of motivational speaking still. I've been traveling all over doing a, um, a ton of that, and so life's well, really good right now. You know, I'm really happy with the way things are going and progressing. And there's always uh, something going on. We got the racing team we race with all summer long. You know, we're racing anywhere between 40 and 60 nights a year with them all over the country. So that's a lot of traveling. And kids are playing sports and stuff now, too. So uh, there's not a whole lot of time to, you know, sit still, yeah. you know. Do you enjoy the riding process? Um. Yeah, I do. Um, I feel like if I don't... Uh, talk about my experiences as, as much as i can and the things that i learned by going through it then it makes my sacrifice worth nothing right. you know um if i went through this all and learned a bunch through it and didn't share with anybody then uh that's kind of selfish and it's uh pointless in a sense you know so i find uh you know writing as a as a as a way to 
honor my sacrifice and the things that I've gone through, you know, to try to make the world the best place that it possibly can be. So people understand what it means to impact somebody's life because so many people have impacted mine. You know, when you make things about somebody else, you can't fail for yourself, you know, because you don't want to let anybody down or you this or that, but it's really easy to talk to yourself, give, make your excuses for yourself, you know, and things like that, you know? Well, listen, we've gone on almost two hours. It's been another great uh, episode. I appreciate your time. Uh, next November, you need to make plans to get down here. Shoot a, shoot a sparkle yeah, belly. Yeah, I'd love that. Yeah, I'd love that. And, um, yeah, if anybody uh, wants to get a copy of my book, they can go to jackzimmermanmn.com or looking for me to come speak to your company or, or um, school or church or whatever it may be. You know, have a dinner or something like that you'd like to see me come speak at. Uh, put us in a point of request, and we'll see if you can work it out so I can make it to their event or company or whatever it is. And it's so. jackzimmermanmn.com? That's, that's yeah. the website? Yep, as in, like, Mike November. Yeah, as in Minnesota. Yeah, Minnesota. Yeah. That's the easiest way to get a hold of you that way? Yeah, for sure. Go on there. Go to my social medias, Jack Zimmerman, 300 minutes, five minutes, 300 seconds. That changed my life. And uh, or Instagram, Jack Zimmerman, 23. Yeah, any of those places, uh, hit me up there and, and uh, we'll uh, see if we can work something off for me to come speak to your group. And go ahead and buy a copy of my book off my website. And, Very cool. Yeah, and then, we, we'll and then we got another book coming out hopefully by the end of the year. Yeah, yeah, we're um, looking at writing a book about, uh, you know, outdoors with eyes of combat, you know. Cool, very cool. Well, listen, when that comes out, we'll uh, we'll get you on after hunting season or something. It's kind of balls to the walls for us. So maybe in uh, February, March, get you back on here and talk about your new book. Perfect. Thanks, Danny. Awesome. Annie. awesome. Hey, thank you, Jack. I appreciate it very much. God bless you. Have a great Thanksgiving, my friend. Yeah, you guys too. And, um, yeah, keep up the good fight and uh, keep making these great podcasts. I know everybody uh, enjoys listening to Thank you very much. Well, uh, have a happy holidays. Thanksgiving and Christmas are here. Spoil those kiddos. Support those sponsors, right? (laughs) Yeah, there you go. See you, bud. Yeah, thanks, man. Great guy. True American hero. He is. Yes, he is. All right, it is time to go scout now. It's warm again. God Almighty. Flies. The, in here. the flies. You're always bitching about flies. Some guy asked me the other day about wasp. He said, y'all got wasp and yes, flies and wasp. everywhere in your stuff? I said, no, I just Andy bitches a lot, but we do have flies again. It happens when it goes 26 and 24 degrees two mornings in a row to 95 a week, and now we're back up to 65 again. Yep. Supposed to be wet, wet, wet Thanksgiving from Thanksgiving to Sunday, they say that week, so hopefully we'll see. All right, thank y'all for listening to us. God bless y'all. Have a great week. Um, anybody looking for a hunt, I have November 29th, November 30th and December 1st open three days goose hunt lodge and meals it's $900 normally $1,350 I can do a group of six to eight guys that day November 29th 30th and December 1st thank you God bless y'all and have a great week ladies and gentlemen go check out all of our amazing sponsors check out Stanfield Outfitters it's not too late you can book that last minute goose hunting trip out here Alpha Outdoor Specialties Hemp Hill Farms Mothbird Double T British Candles Ducks Unlimited Lucky Duck Looking Glass Podcast, Shin Gear, Dirty Duck Coffee, Dive Bomb Industries, Pacific Calls, Boss Shop Shelves, and MLR Graphics.